Hello and welcome to WGTC Radio, the official podcast of entertainment website, We Got This Covered. I'm Jonathan Lack. And I'm Sean Chapman. And we are here to talk about television. Yes. Yes. At long last. Yes. We've never talked ever about television before, not once on this podcast. Well, we have. all the times that we have. We have. It's just, it's always been Doctor Who. Yeah. So, turns out Sean and I watch other TV shows than Doctor Who. Well... A little bit. Okay. Let's, let's not exaggerate and say we watch other TV shows. It's like we have seen occasionally other things on television, <laughs> but I only watch Doctor Who. Okay. I watch other TV shows on Doctor Who. And uh, anyway, there's really nothing going on in the world of entertainment this week. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know why, but there's just nothing. Nothing. Nothing's happened. Yeah. If we had, I guess if we had, you know, had thousands of dollars, we could have flown down to South by Southwest and like covered it in depth and then done a podcast on it, but... Yeah, we don't have thousands of dollars to do that. Yeah, and I don't want to like submerge myself in a sea of Austin hipsters. So that's a really bad. good point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, so what we're doing this week? So there's a dual purpose here. So uh, this week nothing's going on. Next week nothing big is going on. I mean, I guess something could come up, but I'm also going to be out of town next week. It's our spring break, and I'm going to be in Portland with my family. So I will be out of town, and we won't have time to record a podcast. So we are going to record for you today. Our top ten favorite TV shows of all time. Yes. And it'll be just like our top ten movies of all time, which was the pilot episode of WGTC Radio. It's like it's coming full circle. It's yes. like we started out big, we were on movies, we are on the silver screen, now we're on shitty little television screens in your living room. TV has so far eclipsed movies as a creative format right now, it's, it's not even funny. It's more or less true. Yes. So... We will be talking about TV. This is an episode we've kind of kept in our back pocket for a couple of reasons. One, because... Um, you know, obviously we, we know more about movies, we yeah. talk more about movies and games and things like that, and I mean, for me personally, I think Sean, you probably feel the same way, I, I at least I do, I watch a lot more TV than Sean, I know, and more yeah. than most people, I, I cover it, I write about it, I really love TV, but I still don't have time to watch everything I want to, like, there's just certain shows yeah. that I've never gone around to seeing, that I, I kind of, like, I know I want to see before I were to make a list like this, like The Sopranos and Deadwood, um, and some other big ones, and, you know... And, and obviously there's a lot of TV out there, and especially now, these last ten years has been just the golden age of American television. And so, it's a little tough. And um, But I, I think still, I've, you know, taste will change no matter what. Yeah. So, this is as good a time as any to lay down. So far in my life, what are my ten favorite TV shows? Is that kind of how you feel? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And definitely for my list, I don't know about yours how much you feel, but for my list, this is definitely a favorites list. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I were to make what I would say is objectively the best TV shows I've watched... Probably half the stuff on my list wouldn't even be there. So this is very, you know, I feel a lot like television. I feel the same way about TV shows I do about comic books where it's, you know, they're both these serialized formats and, like, there's something about, like, even though something can be very flawed, you can be drawn to, like, a certain element of it that just tightens it for you personally. And yeah. so that's going, that's going to be a theme of my list because I have a very strange yes. fucking list of TV shows here. And my list, I should say, it's kind of interesting uh, the numbers one, two, and three for me would be the exact same in that exact same order, whether we were doing favorite or best. That's just how it shook out, and I was kind of surprised to see that, but that's just 
those are the three I would do in that order. But then the next seven, yeah, it was definitely just favorites. The, yeah. the shows I most in, like, the ones I have spent the most money on over the years, the ones I enjoy the most, just to sit down and watch. And there would be things shifted around, obviously, if we were doing best. Yeah. But that's that's why we I, there's really no fun in doing the best of list. I yeah. feel. Like, at the end of the year, I like to do top ten best movies, but that's, you know, a much smaller sample size. When you've got a sample size this big, favorite is where, where it's at. That's what yeah, you got to do. So, yeah. this is sort of part two of our trifecta we eventually will complete on this podcast. So, we did movies, we're doing TV now, and we will eventually do a two-part podcast on our top ten favorite video games. Yeah, when there's also nothing going on, and yeah. we also have need have a need for filling two weeks' worth of podcasts. Yes. But these are, I think people like these kinds of episodes, and, you know, so in short, this week on the podcast, episode 38, you'll be hearing our numbers 10 through 6 picks, we'll go back and forth, there's a little bit of overlap, but we'll mostly be going back and forth, and then next week, we will be doing 5 through 1, and uh, so we hope you enjoy both of them, and uh, is there anything going on in the world we should talk about before we just jump into the lists? I don't think so, there's like little tiny news in video game, but none of it's really worth talking about, and some of it's... Not stuff I really would want to get into onto the podcast. Yeah, I, I agree. Only thing I'll say before we get going is I'll remind you we talked about it last week. My book, Fade to Lack, A Critic's Journey Through the World of Modern Film. It is available now from Amazon.com. You can also go to www.fade2lack.com, read all about it, and we will be having our first book signing April 6th in Golden. Bunch of details on that. If you live in Golden, we'd love to see you. But let's get started with the list. Sean is going to kick us off with his number 10 favorite TV well, should show. should we do honorable mentions first? We should totally do honorable mentions first. It would, or we can do honorable mentions last if you really um, wanted to. Well, I, I think, think part two of the... First. Yeah, part two is going to be longer. Yeah. So, yeah, let's do them now. Um, yeah. I, it's kind of funny, when I made my list, I actually had 20 shows, ultimately, so I just ranked mine out to, tw- <laughs> out to 20. This is a really rough rank, though, I don't know quite if I, I just ranked it for the hell of it. Um, some of these are going to recur on Sean's list, so I won't talk about them now. Uh, one for me that I know both of us was probably in contention is yeah. the anime Death Note. Yeah, definitely, that would have been, like, my 11 or 12 spot. Yeah, and I should note that we are not, anything that is a TV show counts for this list, yeah. animated, yeah. Japanese, American, British, whatever. TV is TV. Yeah. I, I hate it when people try to separate all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, Death Note is one of my favorite series. The anime would always rank a little lower that, to me than some of the other versions of the story because I read the manga first, really love that, really love the two-part movie adaptation. And the anime is so close to the manga that it's not my favorite version of the story, but it is, as anime go, it is one of the just best-produced anime I've ever seen. The, yeah. the music is just incredible. The voice acting is great. The animation is often very good. Um, it's a really good show. Yeah, I mean, for me... I particularly like, I can't remember, it's like probably the first eight episodes or so. If you've seen, if you know anything about uh, Death Note, it's basically my favorite section of the show. I think the section of the show that's by far the best is when Light is first gets the Death Note and he's, you know, doing all that and sort of his first cat and game, sort of cat and mouse game with L before, like, he in, integrates himself with L and puts himself in that cell. To me, that's the best section of Death Note, and the reason why it didn't make it onto my list was mostly because past that point, I think that at least the show is not that interesting other than for some really big, really awesome episodes, but, like, the first section is the only section that I think is really consistently great. Okay, and I, I disagree. The whole first arc to me, up until L's death, I think is fantastic, and I really love it. Um, although I, I was still agree, I think the most compelling part is before they meet. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's probably 12 or 13 episodes. 
Um, no, I remember, it's I'm just, definitely not. No, it is. It's, it, it, I, I really don't think it is. All right, well, we're looking this up. I'm just remembering from the DVDs. I know it happens on Volume 3, and they're four-episode DVDs, so... We'll look this up. We're taking a detour. But uh, why don't why don't you start talking about one of your honorable mentions while I look this up? I only have two honorable mentions, and my honorable mentions serve a very specific function for me, where I did not. My honorable mentions are not like ones that I was like, ah, they kind of should be on this list, but it's like they're all so good, and I have to cut some kind of thing. It was more my two honorable mentions are the Twilight Zone and Mystery Science Theater three thousand, and the reason why I couldn't put I wanted to put them on my list somewhere. But I haven't seen nearly enough of either of them for me to, like, sort of definitively say anything about the shows. Like, you know, the Twilight, there's so many episodes of The Twilight Zone, and I've only seen some of the more remarkable ones. And there's so many episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000, and I've only seen about 20 or so of those. So I didn't feel okay, like, putting them on the, like, next two shows that I've seen everything of. And so, yeah, that's why Twilight Zone and Mystery Science Theater 3000 are not on my list, even though... They maybe should be, but I couldn't decide like yeah. how I would end up ranking those against other shows. All right, I looked. Uh, Light and L meet for the first time in episode nine at school, but Light does not turn himself in until episode sixteen. Okay, so I would think sixteen is the turning point there, but because uh, while they yeah. meet in episode nine, they're, they yeah. don't interact a lot. Yeah. So anyway, Death Note's great. A um, couple others I have on here that are worth noting is there's a couple of ongoing shows that. Because they're ongoing, I, I would like to see where they go in their runs before I put on here. Uh, for instance, Louie on FX. Love the hell out of that show. I think at one point it could definitely become one of my ten favorite shows yeah. of all time. Like season three was, to me, a very big leaping point where I thought seasons one and two were very good and very fascinating, but season three was just superior. I talked about it on last week's, or on the end of year podcast last yeah. year. And uh, I think if he does more stuff like that, I think it could move up in the world for me. Um, and the other one is Breaking Bad, which is a, obviously one of the best American yeah. shows on TV right now. Second best probably behind Mad Men. Fantastic. Wonderful TV show. But there are eight episodes left, and I because Breaking Bad is a completely plot-centric yeah. show where there is an ongoing story, and they have things they are going to resolve, I want to see what those last eight episodes are. And I don't anticipate they're going to be horrible or anything, and I don't even if they were, that would not invalidate the other parts of the show, but it is a show that is intended to be a complete story, so... Yeah, that's exactly the way I feel about yeah. it, too. Like, I've seen everything up till this, like, last season, is whatever they're doing with the last season. Two so, eight-episode yeah. chunks, and it's weird because each one is really its own season, they're just calling it one season, but those first eight episodes were a season. They had a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah, so... <laughs> it was weird. Yeah, so that's why Breaking Bad is nowhere on my list, either, even though it probably, when I when the last season finishes and I do watch it, it would probably be on the lower section of my list. Yeah, yeah. So, but that's, that's just, you know, we're doing the list now. Yeah. Um, and then one of the ones that was interesting to me that I just didn't know what to do with, and so I ultimately left them off, is The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and The Colbert Report with yeah, Stephen Colbert. I didn't even think about those as TV shows. But those they, are on my honorable mentions now, too. Okay. Because, yeah, I also don't know how I would rank those amongst the other shows. They're so different. Like, obviously, I watch those as much as I can. I love them. I think as pieces of TV, they are among the more impressive things I've ever seen. But yeah, I don't, and they're nothing I'm ever going to rewatch. Is maybe yeah. part of the equation. All the ten shows on my list are things like part of the criteria. I think for me was things I would like to own, rewatch, yeah. and have. And Daily Show's you know it's a news uh, comedy program. Yeah, but it's, worth mentioning. It's, it's completely topical. So yeah, yeah. And then the three that were hardest for me to leave off of my list, and again, I've just I've just watched more TV than Sean, so that's just yeah. what this comes down to. Is that 
Uh, Lost is a show, you know, ABC's Lost. I wrote religiously about that show. I wrote about each episode of the last three seasons, and I loved the hell out of that show. It was so fun to follow and write about and just share thoughts on. And I really love, like, my top ten favorite just, like, TV memories. One of them would definitely just be, you know, watching the run of Lost. But uh, I guess now that I look back on it, it's not a show I'm in any hurry to watch again. And it's not a show that, as much as I loved it, that I think... I'm not saying to say it doesn't hold up. I think it holds up. It's just something that when I look at the other ten shows on my list, those are ten shows I would sooner sit down and watch again than Lost. And that's why it would not make the top ten for me, which is a little surprising to me. But Yeah, yeah, I was a little surprised when you said it wasn't going to be on your, did your ten either. Yeah. Well, and the next two are even more surprising to me, because I did not have room to find The Simpsons a spot, which is crazy to me, because I think The Simpsons is obviously one of the best shows ever to air on American TV. It's amazing comedy. It's so great. I think all the stuff people say now about how it's just like terrible is bullshit. It's still a perfectly good show, just not what it once was. And I think when I go back and look at older episodes of The Simpsons, I think they are astoundingly not just funny, but also prescient and smart. And I'm a little sad I couldn't have that on there. And then the biggest one that was hard for me to leave off is Joss Whedon's Buffy the Vampire Slayer, because... And I, I don't even, if I were to get into it, it would be its own podcast. I just, yeah. I love that show. And I think one day we've always talked about doing a Buffy slash Angel podcast, just talking about that for a couple hours. But really love yeah, that but show. Yeah, we really have absolutely nothing else to talk about, because <clears throat> I don't think Buffy and Angel are ever going to be particularly relevant. Joss Whedon directed the third highest grossing movie in film history. Yeah, but I don't think he's <laughs> going to pull out Buffy or Angel again, is what I'm saying. No, but yeah, you know, we could connect it. <laughs> really, ten- I guess. really tenuously, but we could. Anyway, so that, that was just the one that was tough for me to leave off. I mean, when I sat down to make this list, I didn't know I was going to have so many things I would have to leave off, which was, which was sad. But we can now get into the main list, I guess. Okay, yeah. So let's go on to so the, the main countdown of awesomeness. Yes, sure. I, let's not call it the main countdown, countdown of awesomeness. That's fine. That's, that's a horrible name. I know. So, Sean, drum roll. Your top, your tenth No, we're not. Favorite. Stop. Don't, no, no drum rolls. We don't even have drums. We don't have any rolls. None of that. All right. You're, you're no fanfare, just give it to him straight. The number 10 on my list, my number 10 favorite show of all time, is a little British comedy called Black Adder, which is a show I absolutely adore, and it is actually the only straight comedy on my entire list, which I was kind of surprised at when I made my whole thing. But, Jonathan, have you seen any Black Adder whatsoever? Sadly, no. And it's, yeah, I've, it's one that is always in my Netflix queue, and I will sit down and watch someday. I just haven't had time. I mean, it is definitely... By, one of the good things about Black Adder is that there are not a lot of episodes. It is only... I just want to say four... Yeah, there's only four seasons. The first season of Black Adder is not... Isn't, like, terrible, but it's also not really great, and it doesn't sort of hit on... Like, I don't even really think of the first season of Black Adder when I think about Black Adder because it doesn't have the same formula as the others. But if you don't know anything about Black Adder, it is a British comedy series by uh, Rowan Atkinson, who's sort of a famous British comedian. And each season takes place in a different sort of historical period for uh, Britain. The first one is in the 15th century, and it sort of goes over some of the Crusades and stuff like that. Then where it gets really good is uh, Black Adder 2, the second series, which is set in uh, 16th century uh, England during the Queen Elizabeth's reign, or Queen Elizabeth Queenie, as she's called in the show. Uh, she is one of the main characters. She's absolutely fantastic. And then the third series, Black Adder the Third, is in sort of like the late 18th century, sort of like during King George's stuff, and Prince George was sort of ruling. He was the regent at the time. And then the last series is Black Adder Goes Forth, which is set during World War One. 
And, th- and so that's one of the really great things about the show is that each season, I believe, only has like, I want to say eight episodes or so. Not even that, like six episodes per season. So it's a really quick watch, but that means every single episode is really, really, really fantastic. And they all, and the show continues to sort of reinvent itself. And one of the interesting things is, of course, you know, each, each series continues to have sort of the same principle uh, actors playing the same principal characters, but they're sort of reinvented for that new time period. So they're all sort of the ancestors of each other. So, you know, the Black Adder, who's uh, sort of the servant, the butler for the regent in Black Adder Third, is the ancestor of the character from Black Adder Two, who was sort of, you know, Queenie's dog, who she just sent him off to do random errands and stuff. And that's one of the really interesting things about the series, is to see the slight differences in the characterizations of the main character as they're set in these different time periods. And then the other main character who sort of keeps on popping up across the show is a character named Baldrick, who is sort of Blackadder's henchman, who sort of occupies one, like I would say, it's like sort of like the stupid guy sort of role in a comedy, but he's not just stupid, he's Baldrick, he's... Baldrick's special. (laughs) Baldrick is a fantastic character who always comes up with cunning plans to try to figure out how to get out of these really ridiculous ridiculous scenarios. But I don't really know how much I really want to say a black, about Blackadder, because it's one of those things about talking about comedy, that when you start talking about it too much, you just start going into, like, quoting it and stuff like that. It's just, you know, I, just watch Blackadder. You can skip the first season if you want to. You miss absolutely nothing. It's not a, like, serialized story at all in any way. So I would just say start with Blackadder 2, watch to Blackadder Goes Forth. Blackadder Goes Forth is... The, particularly interesting because that's one set in world war one and it actually has a slightly more somber tone because it's set during world war one and it has like like the entire show is basically black adder and bull and sergeant baldrick and then hugh laurie who he was uh prince george in black adder the third comes back as another character black adder goes forth they are all like in the trenches and it's almost set entirely with them on the front lines in the trenches and so it has this very sort of heavy feel to it that makes the comedy that much better because it sort of like lightens your mood you know it's comic relief in its purest form and so yeah just watch black adder i don't want to say too much about it because there's again there's only about like 18 episodes of the entire show so watch black adder it's fantastic rowan atkinson is goddamn hilarious i love rowan atkinson i mean i have not seen black adder i am a fan of mr bean i think black adder or uh, Rowan Atkinson is just such a great physical comedian. And that's one of the most interesting things about Black Adder is that Black Adder is all about the dialogue, too. Okay. So it's not even, he like, because I, I've seen some Mr. Bean stuff that I also really love, but this is like some of my favorite, just really witty, quick British, like, comedic dialogue I've ever seen. And that's that's why I love the show so much, is because the, the Black Adder character that Rowan Atkinson plays is so clever, but he's always in this, like, sort of, like, second fiddle position under people that are really, really goddamn dumb, like Queenie, or like Hugh Laurie in Black Adder Third, and that's, you know, just always comic gold, but Rowan Atkinson is able to play off that sort of cliche setup, set up really, really well. Yeah. All right. So that was your number 10. My number 10 is also your number 9. Yes. Sort of. Yes. Because mine's a little bit amalgamated, yours is not. My number 10 show is Star Trek, and by this I'm really referring to all the Star Trek TV that I've loved to watch, which is just Star Trek the original series and Star Trek The Next Generation. Never been much interested in the other spinoffs. But these two shows, you know, my personal history is just that my dad loved these shows, particularly Next Generation, and so I was kind of raised on that. I watched Next Generation through. We would get the discs from Netflix back when that's what Netflix did. Yeah. 
very weird to think about now. Especially because it's called Netflix. You know, it's yeah. obviously always their plan to do digital streaming. So I just thought it was kind of like, what did people think when it first came out and they were getting discs from a service called Netflix? Why the hell is it called Netflix? It's a good point. But we would watch Star Trek The Next Generation. I love the hell out of that show. You know, it recently came out on, it's coming out on Blu-ray now. And I've had so much fun watching through the series remastered and very much reborn because now it doesn't look like analog video garbage. And uh, it's just, I, I remember just how much I love that show. And Star Trek The Original Series, which is what's your number nine. Yeah, that's my number nine specifically. Yeah. That show is just one where I came to it after Next Generation, but I, it's, an, it's a better show, obviously. Yeah, I think so, too. And, <clears throat> well, I mean, part of that, it's just a simple equation. If they had, Star Trek The Original Series had three seasons. Two of those were great. Next Generation had seven and took about two seasons to find itself. Yeah. You do the math. I mean, it's just... Next Generation was a little rougher around the edges. And Original Series is some of the best science fiction writing that has ever been done. It is just fucking phenomenal when it's yeah. at its best, and it is quite often at its best. Yeah. And, and um, even when it's not at its best, it is it is one of the single most charming shows I've ever watched in oh, my yeah. entire life. Like, even when... You know, <clears throat> Star Trek the original series is damn near the cheesiest thing I've ever watched. It is not the cheesiest. We'll get to the cheesiest things I've ever watched. But it's damn near that level. It is, But it is so endearing in how cheesy and corny it is that even when you know they reuse the same four plots for almost every single episode, I don't care. I don't care. Yeah. Because they're great plots and they're lots of fun. And for me... The reason why, because I actually, I have a very similar history to you with Star Trek, where it was, for my case, it was my mom really, really liked Star Trek, and she would watch Star Trek The Next Generation all the time, so I was raised on it sort of in that side, and watched a lot of Star Trek The Next Generation with my mother, but then, after the fact, when I got Netflix, and Star Trek The Original Series was one of the first shows that were on, like, streaming that I watched on, actually, it was the very first one, it was the first thing I ever watched on Netflix, I remember, and so I, like, just sat down and watched that, and I immediately fell in love with it for three reasons. Yes. Kirk, Spock, motherfucking McCoy. That is so That true. is why Star Trek The Original Series trumps The Next Generation, because the only character I absolutely love in The Next Generation is Picard. All the other ones are okay, too, sometimes, I, I really like, but no character in The Next Generation, to me, even approaches the level of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. You are completely 100% right, and that's what I love about it, and that's what I was going to say, actually, when, when it came back around to me, is just that... You fall in love with those characters so fast and the dynamic they have. And it's, it's fascinating to watch through the early episodes and see how they have to reorient the show. Because McCoy was originally not a huge part at all. Mm -hmm. Kirk was going to be more of just the main macho hero dude. And Spock was even kind of deprioritized. Yeah. And those three, you know, after they have their first scene in the series together, you can just see them kind of scrambling to figure out how to make this show... Sort of a three-person ensemble with yeah. these other, you know... And it's got a bunch of other great characters, yeah, yeah. too. But those three just work so well together, and it's just this... It's also very, very smart the way they play off yeah. each other, where you have... It's very archetypical, but Spock being logic, um, McCoy being emotion, and Kirk being the mix of those, that allows them to tell so many in-depth stories and yeah. explore such in-depth content just through the way these three characters move through the world. Yeah, I mean, that, that dichotomy between logic and emotion, in my mind, is the most like pure dissection of like what it means to be human is trying to reconcile those two factors sort of like your animalistic instincts and then I guess what you'd call your more intelligent higher nature and sort of like how do those things interact with each other how do you reconcile the fact that they are constantly pulling you two different directions and that's what the 
that is what Star Trek the original series is all about at its very core, which is yeah. really interesting to me because it's not on the face of it, you wouldn't think of it that way. When you dig into the themes, almost every single episode is really about that. Yeah, and this is something I try to convince people of all the time, and so many people just don't even want to hear it. Star Trek the original series, I think, is one of the smartest damn shows to ever air on American TV, at least pre-2000. It is a wildly intelligent it TV is series. Yeah. And it has so many interesting things to say, and I think there are so many episodes that are just absolute masterpieces. Especially the first season is just just hit after hit yeah. after hit after hit. I think especially once you get around to like episode nine, Dagger of the Mind, Corbomite Maneuver, which is sort of the first one where you really get like space naval battles. Yeah. And then into the menagerie where they reuse the pilot, the cage, but they, they do some new stuff. I mean, no one knew they were reusing the pilot at yeah. the time. And and then into, you know, Balance of Terror, which is the famous one with the where they're having the battle with the Romulans in space. That's probably the best just Star Trek action outside of uh, Wrath of Khan. Yeah. Um, you know, I just, I love so many of these. Arena, where he fights the Gorn. But people forget Arena has so much other stuff in it, and it's a really fucking intense episode. Yeah. Because while that Gorn thing is incredibly cheesy, a lot <laughs> yeah. of that episode is intense because they are getting fucking carpet bombed by aliens on yeah. this planet, and they have no way out. And so Kirk's like, what's the one logical thing I can do? Fist fight with the alien captain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's awesome. You know, I the, the court martial episode where where Kirk is put on trial. That's a really good one. I mean, he's probably put on trial several times throughout the series. This was the first time. <laughs> yeah, no. The, yeah. Again, it's one of the f- most fun things about watching the original series, like back to back to back, like in a marathon sitting, is that you realize, like, I two episodes ago, ago I saw a plot that involved an alternate universe Kirk coming into yeah. this reality. Oh, hey, alternate universe Kirk, you're a different one, but welcome back. I missed you. So uh, there's the space seed one where we meet Khan, the Devil in the Dark, where you have Spock going pain. That's actually, pain! I think the Devil in the Dark to me is one of the like episodes that is like that encapsulates what the original series is all about. Where oh, it's like, one of the best. as far as like actual sci-fi, it's really goddamn interesting, and it has a a really good like hard sci-fi premise. It's one of the few Star Trek episodes that actually has a good hard sci-fi premise. Of that is just it's about this silicon-based life form, which is like yes, that's fucking interesting having a life form based on something where we're based on carbon and having it you know silicon is very similar to carbon that's right next to it in the periodic table it's like that's interesting let's like explore those possibilities but then it's also the cheesiest fucking thing in the world because that silicon based life form happens to look a hell of a lot like fake plastic vomit yeah so mixing mixing those two things together somehow it just fucking works beautifully it does I mean that is an episode I make fun of it for the pain thing but but it's a great episode of television it is just so good and then season one also obviously includes the city on the edge of forever which is often called the best episode I don't think it's my absolute favorite but certainly top five it's brilliant and it's really, really good, and it's one of the it's a, one of the first great time travel Star Trek stories, and probably the greatest. Yeah. Um, and then into season two, I don't want to go out episode by episode, but season two is also just they're just on fire for that whole season. It's just great, and there's yeah. so many good ones there. I think you know there's the, the one with triples <clears throat> is a is comic gold, and that is that's one of the few Star Trek episodes though where they are. I mean. They know it's 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 totally intended yeah, to yeah. be what it is, and it's great. Although I, I forgot to mention the shore leaf episode from season one that with was the fantastic. giant giant rabbit. Love yeah. that episode. Um, just there are so many good episodes in season two. Just throughout this this that whole run, season three is a step down. 
they yeah. had their budget slashed to shit. And I love just the first episode of season three. The just the the sentence on Wikipedia: Captain Kirk pursues aliens who have stolen Spock's brain. Yeah. I forgot that episode existed until I just saw that sentence. That totally fucking happened. Yeah. Happened, and it is as weird as that sentence sounds. Yeah, and season three still. Very good yeah. in, a, in a lot of parts, but seasons one and two are just, as sci-fi television goes, you it's hard to top that. And then that, obviously I think there are some shows that you could argue have, but it's, it's it's a really damn great show. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. And and their handle on character throughout is very good, even outside of that main trio. I always love Scotty. Yeah. I yeah. think Sulu's a lot of fun. George Takei, who is kind of a fucking hero now because he's such a funny dude online. Yeah. But, I mean, just lots of good stuff there. They never really know who Uhura was, but, you know, kudos to them for having a woman on their show at all. Yeah. Let alone, yeah. you know, casting an African-American woman in a lead role. It seems very dated now. That was wildly ahead of its time. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, like, I always liked that in the new Star Trek movie, they actually gave Uhura a character mm-hmm. to play. <laughs> but, yeah. Just lots, lots and lots of good stuff. So and you, you can't forget to mention the countless just random women that are on the ship that oh, yeah. all like serve as the vague love interests of Kirk when he doesn't happen to have an episode where he teaches an alien woman how to love. Yes, which is my favorite overused plot device in all the original series is the this alien woman thing does not know how to love. Let me teach you by fucking you. He's he's good at that. <laughs> uh, my my favorite of the women on the ship is Yaoman Rand, who was only there for season one. But I, I like Yelman Rand. I, I, Kirk just... She, she's one of the only women in the show who doesn't put up with Kirk's bullshit, but you can tell they've probably yeah. fucked every other week. Yeah. <laughs> another, another great fucking recurring plot device. This, this, actually, this one might be my real favorite, is the alien being that is actually an ancient Earth god. Yes. That one pops up all the fucking time. It's that great. one's really good. And, they, and every single time it happens, everybody has to go through this revelation of, like, this being calls himself... Ares, could it be that at some point in Earth's distant past, this alien creature landed on our planet, and our ancient ancestors assumed he was some sort of god? But they like, always have to do that. There's the best one is who mourns for Adonis. It's the one with they meet the Greek god Apollo. Yeah, and it's they're held captive by him. It's yeah. it's so much fun. Love that one. Um, you know, you were just doing your your Kirk impression. That's that's by the way why we played. William Shatner singing Rocket Man to open this podcast. Which, I mean, if you have not seen that, go on YouTube, type in William Shatner Rocket Man. It is one of the best internet videos I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. It, it is he'll, it, side-splittingly funny. Yeah. Quite literally. Yeah, is. you have to watch it all the way to the end, too. Yeah. It, it, it keeps on getting better. Yes. It hurts laughing at that. It is so good. So, I think that's... Oh, the other thing I want to say about the original series. Visually, this is a... In, incredibly beautiful show. Yeah. And the sets were just... Okay, sets were great, you know, seriously, 1966. Obviously, they look so, in some ways dated now, but still very elaborate for even for now. I mean... And really colorful. I always like... Really it's colorful. Like, it's really bright. It's like there's a lot of, like... It, you know, it plays with a lot of, like, golds, reds, and greens. It's sort yeah. of, like, not only with the, the characters' uniforms, but also, like, on the alien planets they land on, have all these, like, really bright, like, exotic fauna and stuff that I always like. I love that stuff. The cinematography is fairly sophisticated. And if you have not seen... I think the, the ones on Netflix are the HD remasters, right? Yeah, yeah. And then you can also get them on Blu-ray. And they those remasters they did are just phenomenal because they had the 35mm elements and they could just... Because it was shot on 35mm, the resolution is effectively limitless. And yeah. so it's, it just looks gorgeous. And that 
I think people forgot because the the, the film masters degraded so much over time in those repeat airings. Mm-hmm. But Star Trek original series just looks absolutely incredible. And I guess that's a good segue into The Next Generation, which has long been known as kind of one of the ugliest shows in TV history because they, they actually shot it on 35mm, but then for effects they finished it on analog tape. So that's why it's always looked so awful, but they are now doing, they're completely rebuilding the show for Blu-ray, and it looks, it, I mean, it, it, it's not on par with the original series, but it's, it turns out that show looked really nice. No one ever just yeah. saw it that way. Because there was that weird period where we decided these weird analog video was the way of the future. Yeah. Even though it clearly looked inferior to everything else. Yeah. <laughs> National shame. Anyway, but I really love The Next Generation, and obviously many of my... It's on this list for me because so many of my favorite TV memories, let alone Star Trek memories, are watching The Next Generation. And I think even in its first two seasons, which are obviously rough, yeah. it can be a lot of fun. And I think yeah, sometimes that's because it's rough, because there are some hilariously bad episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. Watch The Naked Now and just, just, just laugh, just have fun with it. Or there's the one where Wesley Crusher, like, there's the, the place where, like, you can't walk on the grass or else you will die, and so Wesley Crusher is put on death trial, and Picard, there's a great moment where he's actually considering just letting Wesley get executed because he did break the law, and I would have loved that because I hate Wesley, and he's a piece of shit, and I love when the show finally de-emphasizes him because Wesley is a terrible character, but there are, some, there are so many fun episodes of Next Generation, and once you get to season three, it does get really good really fast, and there are, seasons three and four are the two best seasons of the show, lots of great stuff in there, um, you know, I, I think Yesterday's Enterprise is probably one of my favorites from that era of the show, which is where they, um, they wind up going back in time, sort of, but actually, no, but there's, it's an alternate reality thing, really hard to describe, yeah. but they wind up meeting another Enterprise, but it's from the past, and Tasha Yar is still there, but she died, and, and yeah, and... That that's kind of funny. There's the episode where Worf has to go on trial to prove his father's innocence, the sins of the father episode. I love that one. I uh, love the one where Sarek, that's just called Sarek, but that's where you meet Sarek for the first time on Next Generation. That's when they start bringing in people from the original series. Um, obviously the best of both worlds two-parter where Picard becomes a Borg. Doesn't get much better than that. Yeah. Really good stuff. And then I think, you know, we, we can go through a lot of these. One of my favorites, and I think it's from season five. I'm looking through here. I just saw Unification. That's the two-parter with Spock. Gotta watch that one. It's awesome. But wherever it is, I think it may be season six, but it's called Tapestry. That's one of my favorite ones. It's where Q comes back, because Q's all over the place on this show, yeah, obviously. Season six. Okay. And Tapestry is where you find out that Kirk has a fake Kirk. Picard has a fake heart, because as a kid he was a dick and got in a fight with a bunch of Klingons and got stabbed through the heart. And Q gives him the chance to go back in time and relive these days. Yeah. And he finds out that his mistakes really shaped the man he was going to be. It's a phenomenal episode. And that's, to me, an example of what The Next Generation could do at its best, is just these really great character-based sci-fi stories. There's a lot of good stuff like that. And uh, I think, you know, maybe my very favorite episode from a certain perspective is just the finale, All Good Things. That's, That's as good a finale to a show that was not serialized as I think there's ever been. That's just a great, great series finale. And um, one of the best episodes of TV I think I've ever seen. Um, I, God, now I'm for blanking on the episode. The Inner Light. The Inner Light is the other one always cited as one of the great Next Generation episodes. That's where Picard winds up living the life of this, like, extinct, like, he goes back in time, but in the body of another man who was a scientist on this planet that got, all the life was extinct, 
and and he sort of he, he winds up living this man's entire life and then comes back and that episode is a total mind fuck because Picard winds up living an entire existence as another person then comes back to the Enterprise and all he has from the family he had before is this flute yeah and he plays it and it like you feel like that should be the next three seasons of the show is him in therapy it's it's like in in Doctor Who when Rory spends like two thousand yes. years as as Roman like centurion it's just like yeah it's just one of these like it's this, like, really great story device that's really interesting for this character, but it's like, if we tried to follow up on this appropriately, it would, like, this what the show would now be about. So it's like, yeah. let's do a different thing with the next episode. It's yeah. Right decision, but... Right. And and while I agree that, the, obviously, the, ne- the original series cast is very superior to the Next Generation cast, I love a lot of the Next Generation characters. Picard, I mean... If you want someone running your starship, Picard is is as good a captain as you're going to find. Other than Kirk, love Patrick Stewart in that part. He's so good. I like a lot of the other characters. I I'm one of the few who will say Deanna Troy is a valuable part of this show because there's no funnier character on TV than the absolutely useless Deanna Troy. And I just love bless Marina Sirtis' heart. She is trying so hard in every episode of Next Generation to make Deanna Troy seem valuable. Yeah, and she looks fucking beautiful while doing it. I have always had a crush on Deanna Troy. She is she is a gorgeous woman. All right, then. Just wanted to put that out there. Okay. All right. But that's Star Trek for you. I mean, we okay, we can't do this without addressing the elephant in the room, Kirk or Picard. I think we all know <laughs> the right choice, and we all know the choice I make. But what about you? Because you have both of them on there. I don't... Do I need to choose? You, yes. You can't cop out of this. You, you can't call right, out what? and be like, it's both of them, or like one of them in like certain scenarios. Yeah. Well, are we doing like just overall as characters or as people we would like to hang out with, or what? Like, uh, you, I mean, you, you define how you want to define it. I think everybody has their own like reason they pick Kirk or Picard. It's just the question is Kirk or Picard. That's it. It's not even a fucking sentence. Just Kirk or Picard. All right, I'm going to try to reason. I'm going to try to reason through it here. In many ways, Picard, I think how good a character he is is inflated by him being clearly the best character on his show and being someone who they wind up building nearly every story around. Yeah. In a certain way, I mean, Next Generation is an ensemble show to a certain degree, but they very quickly make it the Picard show. Yeah, the emphasis is definitely on Picard. Yeah, and that's not how the original series generally functions. Yeah. I mean, Kirk is obviously the center, but he's also, I mean, Spock and yeah, McCoy. Yeah, but Spock and McCoy are always on screen with Kirk, yes. unless it's like Kirk's action episode. Right. And so, to that degree, I think, yeah, it's, it's Kirk in many ways also gets overshadowed by the fact that he has a great cast supporting him. In terms of quality of performance, I have to go with, with Patrick Stewart because he's a great actor, brings this wonderful Shakespearean authenticity to Picard and to Star Trek, and I think he sells Next Generation. But, in terms of just how the character functions, how entertaining they are, and how well they kind of fit into the universe, all other things aside... Kirk, I think, at the end of the day. made the right choice. Anybody who says Picard does not belong on this podcast. It's it's very, very close to me, but yes, I think Picard Picard does not fight a Gorn. And at the end of the day, that's the number one reason I have to give. And Patrick Stewart did not give the single most amazing performance of Rocketman (laughs) the world has ever seen. That's very true. 
that comes into account. Yeah. Is and, William Shatner's Rocket Man. And here, I'm gonna, I think I can reason this out a little bit more even. Well, Picard, I think people like to say, you know, Picard, when, when they pick Picard, their reasoning is usually that he's the brilliant tactician. He's the one who, he really, so he's, that's what I was going to yeah. say. People always forget Kirk is just as smart as Picard. Yeah, they obviously have not watched Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Yes. Also, one of the most compelling reasons for Kirk, fucking Star Trek II. Exactly, and, that, and not just that for like the cheese value of that line, but yeah. like as far as for the Star Trek movies, I think yes. what Star Trek two II and three do for Kirk as a character are so interesting that I think it's more interesting than like the stuff they do with Picard on the TV show. I completely so if you're trying agree. to go for like actual legitimate dramatic arc and ignore some of like the cheesy side of it, I think the Star Trek mo- movies serve the Kirk character better than Picard has ever been served. That's absolutely true. I completely agree with you, and I think where Kirk definitely has the leg up for me is that he has that brilliant tactician side Picard has, that career military guy who clearly knows his shit at yeah. this point in his life. But he can also kick your ass. Yeah, yeah, he can. And he can sleep with whoever he wants. He can teach women who don't know the concept of love what love is with his dick. <laughs> he can do that. It's fucking Kirk. Picard can do that. Picard doesn't even have fucking hair on the top of his head. <laughs> Yes. Kirk, the more I reason through it, the more, yeah, yeah, Kirk, because Kirk has all the stuff that makes Picard great, and he can sing Rocket Man like a motherfucker. Yes, he can. So I feel like this, this is what the rest of our podcast needs to be. The age-old, the, the fucking, the, the war between two sides settled here definitively. For God's sakes, it's fucking Kirk. You people who pick Picard are insane. I tend to agree. All right. Oh, My, what the fuck were we talking about? All right. You're, you went number 10, Black Adder. I went number 10, Star Trek Amalgamation. Yeah. You went number 9, Star Trek, the original series. Yes. My number 9 is Doctor Who. Doctor Who! Yeah, that's, uh, you got to do that every time now. Yes, I do. All right. Until until Stephen Moffat stops with this fucking Doctor Who plot <laughs> like story thing. Every time, Doctor Who! Every okay. time. It's my protest. All right. <laughs> Well, anyway, Doctor Who is a little higher on your list, isn't it, Sean? It might be. We'll see if it shows up somewhere. Okay. But in, in, the, in the eventuality that it may, yeah, it I'm going to keep my spiel on Doctor Who brief, because I think okay. we'll want to talk about it all at once, oh. and, and, you know... If you, it comes up. Yeah. So Doctor Who, for me, is a show that I discovered a couple... I actually think I started watching it a little bit before you did, but then you went and, like, totally outpaced me by watching the entire fucking series in a year. Yeah. Yeah, that happened. <laughs> Yeah, but anyway, I, uh, I I found I started watching the episodes from the I I've always wanted to see this show, and basically there's a difference between you and me, Sean. I sat down on Wikipedia reading about Doctor Who, and I'm like, God, there are 700 episodes. I think the easiest place for me to start is the revival series, and then if I want to, I'll go back. But I'll start with Christopher Eccleston. That seems like the easiest point to start with. So that's what I did, and at that point. David Tennant's last episode had not yet aired, but it was about to, and I think I caught up in time to see that, is basically how that went. Mm -hmm. So I watched all four seasons of the Russell T. Davies run, and then I started watching it live week to week with Matt Smith. And just Doctor Who is just great, and we'll talk, we'll get much deeper into it later, but I just remember, I think, what, I, I want... The, the basis of my discussion to be someone who does not get enough attention in the Doctor Who canon, and that is Christopher Eccleston, yeah. because he is the reason I fell in love with Doctor Who. And I know I could have started with any of the other yeah. Doctors and probably gotten that same feeling, mm-hmm. but Christopher Eccleston was the one who got this chance to reboot the character yeah. and did it beautifully. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. What they did with that revival of the show is 
blows my mind that it worked yes. so fucking well, so amazingly. Yeah. We're in the seventh. Is a huge part of why that worked. Yeah. I, to me, he is the central reason when I look yeah. at that first episode. Russell T. Davies was very smart in doing that first episode as uh, Rose's story yeah. and viewed through her eyes, and that's how we meet the Doctor, because that made him all the more fantastic. But I was just, I was just like drunk in love with this character the moment he fell on screen. Same way as Rose, I'm just yeah. fascinated by this guy and really want to learn more about him. And I think, you know, series one of Doctor Who has some growing pains, the, the revived series, season yeah. 27, 8 overall? I think uh, it's 28. Something like that. Anyway, but, you know, it's got some growing pains here and there, but it is so compelling throughout because Christopher Eccleston is so good, and I think, you know, there's always this sort of war within me of would it have been better if he had gotten to do a little more on the show, like if he had gotten a second season or not, but when it comes down to it, I think him getting just those 13 episodes kind of makes him one of the perfect doctors because he got to, he came in, he went out, and he did fucking yeah. great work yeah. every single second in between. And he didn't he didn't even get to have a rise or fall or anything. David Tennant, obviously, not because of his performance, but just there were some rough times during the David Tennant years. No, Christopher Eccleston got 13 episodes, and he was fucking amazing in all 13. And that by the end of those 13, I loved this show. And then I have to give props to Russell T. Davies and David Tennant because... What sold Doctor Who to me as something that I will be watching for the rest of my life is at the end of episode 13 and then into the Christmas special, the one where we meet the David Tennant Doctor proper. When he morphs into David Tennant, I completely believed that this was the exact same human, the same same soul, same person, just in a new body. I totally bought that, and I didn't think I would. I'd heard about this regeneration thing, and I'm like, well, how do they really do that? They don't look anything alike. They don't sound anything alike. But Eccleston, Davies, and Tennant just... However they did it, and I can't even pinpoint what it is, but across episode 13 and then Christmas Invasion, that was so clearly to me the same character, and that to me is the point, I think every Doctor Who fan has to reach that point where they see a regeneration, they meet a new Doctor, and that's when you're on board for life. Yeah, yeah, that's when you've bought it, is once you get into regeneration, because then the show can go on forever. Yes. And and if you can accept a new Doctor, you're there. Yep. Yeah. And, And I've loved it ever since. I've watched... I still have not watched a huge amount of the original series, but I've gone back and I watched mean, some stuff it, Sean's recommended. To, to say you have to, to watch a huge amount of the original series, that is a lot of fucking yeah, yeah. stuff you need to watch. I've, uh, but I've seen at least you, a... You've, you've watched enough to yeah. like, be informed about it. I've seen at least a full serial from every Doctor, which I think is more than most people could say. Yeah. I even watched the TV movie with the eighth <laughs> Doctor. Who am I? One of the greatest scenes ever put to film. Okay. Who am I? Watch the so Doctor. Dramatic. Watch the Doctor Who TV movie. Surprisingly, surprisingly, now on DVD. For, really? Yeah, awesome. Yep. I need to get that. It, and uh, you can you can watch that and learn what we were quoting just yeah. now. Anyway, but yeah, I think Doctor Who just it's so much fun, and you know I think the Russell T Davies years had some ups and downs, but mostly ups. Yeah. And when Doctor Who does a good episode, they do a good episode like no one else. Doctor mm-hmm. Who episodes that are great are just fucking great. And I love all the characters for the most part, except Rose in Series 2 wanted to fucking kill her. But Rose in Series 1 was just fine. Yeah. And, and I think where Doctor Who really took a step up for me into being one of my just favorite TV shows ever was when Matt Smith comes on board and Stephen Moffat takes over the show. And while we're both a little worried about what Stephen Moffat's doing with the show right now, that's also because our sample size for this season is so ridiculously yeah. small. It's yeah. still only been yeah. six fucking episodes. And, and it's just like... and the. The way those six episodes have come to be and what they need to be for that season is just like they couldn't have been no. that good, like as a whole. But I think you know, seasons series five and six are my favorite two of the revived series, yeah. and a big part of that is Matt Smith is phenomenal. 
He's my favorite Doctor of the ones I've seen, although I, I have not seen enough of some of the earlier Doctors. Yeah. To, but he's definitely the best of the revived series. I agree. And, uh, and just such great storytelling. Series 5 of Doctor Who is the one I need to talk about here, because that is one of my probably top five favorite TV seasons of all time. I think Matt Smith's debut season. All 13 episodes are fantastic. And they build this... this they're, they're episodic, which is, I think, the best way Doctor Who works, but with an ongoing arc that works really, 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 really well. Yeah. And just is so much fun to watch. And, and when you get to those last two episodes, the Big Bang slash the Pandorica opens. Might be the other way around. Yes, Pandorica opens, yeah, yeah, the, Pandora Big Pandora opens the Big Bang. Yeah, I don't know if there's a more satisfying just climax in sort of modern TV when you get to the end of a season and you just... For, for big like fantasy, you know, sci-fi TV like this... It's just, it's so good. And that season to me is just so perfect. Also because you've got Amy, you know, Karen Gillan and Rory, Arthur Darville. And uh, that, that team worked so well together. So, yay Doctor Who. Yeah. We will talk much more about you whenever, whenever it shows up on yeah, Shots. It, it might pop up. I don't know. Yeah. I can't even remember. All right. What is your number eight show, Sean? My number eight, this is, this is kind of a weird one. But this is uh, Sherlock Holmes, the Granada TV series. Which, it's a, it's, it was a British television show that... It's really, I mean, like, like they would think of it as being, like, I think four or five different TV shows, but it's the same cast other than for the first season. I just refer to them as seasons all throughout. And it's basically, they decided they were going to just adapt these, you know, huge amount of short stories that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote about Sherlock Holmes and Dr. John Watson. And, you know, most of, like, you know, Sherlock Holmes and Watson are the two most played characters, like, adapted onto screen ever of all time, because everybody fucking does their Sherlock Holmes. It doesn't matter what country, what language, everybody loves them. They're two of the best characters ever created. Did you know, did you know, Hayao Miyazaki, before he became famous, directed a full season of television called Sherlock Hound? I'm not surprised that that is the case. Hayao fucking Miyazaki did Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) Yeah, no, every, like I said, I mean, fucking Sherlock Holmes created, like, the genius detective genre. It's fucking... I mean, there are people in the world who think that Sherlock Holmes and Dr. John H. Watson were actual fucking people. That's how good and well-realized those characters are and how much they penetrate popular culture, that people think they were actual real-life people who fucking helped, the, who helped Scotland Yard in the 19th century in London. You know? And it's, when you read those Arthur Conan Doyle stories, that's because they yeah. sound perfectly plausible most yeah, of the exactly. time. But anyways, the, the, yeah. the Granada TV series is, instead of doing what most people did, you know, like with the Basil Rathbone, Hollywood, Sherlock Holmes movies and stuff, where they just c- come up with their own Sherlock Holmes stories and don't adapt the original material, they're like, fuck that shit. We've got all these goddamn stories. Look at all these stories, this huge fucking tome of all the Sherlock Holmes stories. Let's just adapt these onto screen. And let's, let's do... They did almost all of them. They did fucking a ton. And... And it's one of my favorite things about it is that it's just, like, if you don't want to read all the Sherlock Holmes stories, like, you can just watch this show. Because it, it is original Sherlock Holmes. The guy, Jeremy Brett, who plays Sherlock Holmes, is my favorite Sherlock Holmes I've ever seen on screen. He is fucking brilliant. The way he captures that character but doesn't make it any, like, over-the-top or anything like that. You know, he captures the very, like, British-y essence of that character, but then also in, like, certain moments becomes incredibly eccentric in a very subtle way. That doesn't make any sense, but it makes sense when you watch the show. I actually think it makes sense. Yeah. You get that from the Doyle stories. Yeah, yeah. And then also, uh, Edward Hardwick, who plays uh, Dr. John Watson after the first season, the first season's uh, Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, where David Burke plays Watson. And those 
are okay, but I think the show gets a lot better in the second season that starts with The Empty House, which is the story of, like, when yeah. Sherlock Holmes comes back after he falls and the Rickenbach falls. Spoiler alert, he doesn't fucking die. But, yeah, then Edward Hardwick takes up the role of Watson, and he is also... I really fucking love Martin Freeman as Watson in the new Sherlock show also, but I still think Edward Hardwick's probably my favorite Watson. Well, they're, it's yeah. a very yeah, different they're, they're very different. But, but Edward Hardwick also... He's fucking Watson. Like, they don't do that very stereotypical, like, adaptation thing for Watson where they make him, like, really fat and useless and whatever. I yeah. don't know. Why? Where did that come from? Yeah, I don't I've, get it. I've watched a bunch of the the, the one where Nigel Bruce, the, the movies where Nigel Bruce played uh, Watson, and that's, I think that might be the first time that's happened. That's the earliest example I've seen those movies were made in, like, the 40s, but... Yeah, I think where I it comes know. from, and it's so weird to me, I think where it comes from is that in the stories, Watson doesn't do much because he's yeah. just narrating. So you do have to adapt him in a way to make him an active player. But doing making him a butt like a bumbling idiot, yeah, is the opposite. Like yeah. because because while he doesn't do much, what stuff he does do is he's an incredibly reliable friend who always sticks by Sherlock, who puts up with Sherlock's bullshit to the best of his goddamn ability, and you know he is always there to back him up and, if need be. And and this is something Doyle makes very clear all the time. Watson is also incredibly ridiculously intelligent. He's yeah, just yeah. not Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, but. No one else is. He is next to Sherlock Holmes. He's one of the smartest guys in London. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. So, and so, yeah, they, they, and that's the brilliant thing about the, these series of TV shows is that they, they capture that. They are able to adapt those stories onto the screen faithfully. The actors playing the characters play the characters beautifully, and it's just it is a fantastic way to experience Sherlock Holmes in like its pure form. And it's, it's, you know, they don't try to change too much. They change just as much as you need to. But one of the great things about those stories is that they adapt to the screen really well. You don't have to change a lot. They are very sort of cinematic. You know, they are the framework for detective stories. And I fucking love detective stories. You know, one of the TV shows that I didn't get, that I probably should have pushed this on my honorable mentions, is the first shows that I really watched a lot that I actually, like, watched on TV were Law & Order, both original and criminal intent were the two I watched a lot. And, you know, fucking Sherlock Holmes is the framework for that genre of, like, this, like, detective law fiction. And these are my favorite versions of those on screen. The the vast majority of them are available on Netflix. That's how I saw almost all of them. I had to rent some from the library. Libraries love this fucking series. You can find them in libraries anywhere. This is definitely, like, a DVDs you find in a library kind of show in a really great way. And I, this is yeah. a show I have always wanted to watch because I've always wanted just that yeah. faithful TV, like, just do the stories. Yeah. Because no one's ever really done it. Yeah. But the fact that it exists, I've that's always kind of, this is a weird thing, but because it exists and I know it's there and ready for me to watch it whenever I want to in my yeah. life, I've never had a huge hurry to get to it because I'm just like, I don't need to hurry to it. It'll be yeah. there whenever I need it, you know. I just like that this thing I want from Sherlock Holmes exists and yeah. I don't need to go searching for it. Yeah, and it's, it's like, there. and it's one of the great things about it is that, you know, you can just watch a couple of episodes. Like, you don't need to. I've seen most of them, but I've, like, I've, I will, like, drop and pick up the show constantly because it's not something you need to watch religiously. You know, obviously, they're all standalone stories, and it's just, like, if you've got, like, 45 minutes to kill, it's just fantastic to watch them. And yeah. I think, honestly, still my favorite one is their adaptation of The Empty House because that that story in particular... Just because that's actually it, because that was the first one I watched. I did not, when I got the DVDs, I got the set of The Return of Sherlock Holmes, and I did not see The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes. So I was introduced to this adaptation of the character. And what I think is kind of the best way possible is that he comes back from having presumably been killed 
in the coolest fucking way possible where he's just disguised himself and he just like st- bumps into Watson on the street and then just goes into his office and is like, I haven't seen Watson in two years. He thinks I'm dead. Yeah, fuck it. Nope, it's me. I'm, I'm, I am actually the like scary beggar lady outside of your office. And that story is just adapted to the screen so fantastically. So I would definitely fact, say, if you want to, to watch this series, I would definitely start with that one. Aren't you excited to see how they're going to do that on the Stephen Moffat Sherlock? Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> That's going to be great. Yeah, I hope they, they do a pretty faithful, or yeah. like, not necessarily faithful, like, take a lot of the elements of that story. Similar to how they, they did the Irene Adler one, to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, but again, I, I, don't, I want to stress, I think what makes them as fantastic as they are for me are Jeremy Brett and Edward Hardwick are just fucking amazing in those roles. Particularly Jeremy Brett just completely threw himself into that role in like in an incredible way and like is he just is Sherlock Holmes to me. Like yeah. look at that look at that fucking dude. That dude no, is Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. That's fucking Sherlock Holmes. That's great. Yeah. Yep. Love it. Alright. Well that was your number eight. Yep. My number eight is the first show of the new millennium on our list. Oh. Which I think it's kinda interesting. Yeah. But it is NBC it's also the only straight comedy on my list, just as you only had the yeah. one on your list. And it is NBC's Parks and Recreation. And generally, I have, I have a rule assembling this list. You know, I want it to be shows that are done because I want to see their whole yeah. arc. But Parks and Recreation has brought me so much joy. And that is the number one emotion I think you can associate with this show is joy. And no matter how much I watch this show, just the, like, happiness it creates, there is no better movie or book or TV show or anything in the world for me that is just, just makes me happy than Parks and Recreation. And what is so incredible about that is that, Sean, you can probably agree with me on yeah. this, most comedy comes from cynicism, right? Yeah, yeah. That's kind yeah, of that's where we draw most Black comedy. Adder. Yeah. That is definitely, that's 100% Black Adder. And that's usually what I enjoy in comedy. But Parks and Recreation is the single most optimistic TV show I've ever seen. It just, it just loves things. It loves its characters. Its characters love each other. Its characters mostly love their jobs and their lives, and there's there's tough things that happen to them here and there, but things work out because they're good people, and, you know, they, they, they work hard and things like that, and it's it definitely exists in a heightened reality, but it just, it is so happy, and it is also so ridiculously, side-splittingly, painfully funny almost all the time, and it is, and it's gotten, it definitely reached its height of being just side-splittingly funny in its third season, which is its best and most perfect overall but then in seasons four and five, they've gotten even just sort of warmer and more emotional and just gone deeper with these characters. And I think the show has gotten, in many ways, better even as they've kind of realized that, you know, a comedy does not just have to be funny to be great. And that's yeah. kind of what Parks and Recreation is doing. And I, this show has such an unfortunate arc, though, because it just so happened the show had a terrible pilot. And that happens in yeah. the world of, yeah. of network development. Which is unfortunate for me. That's the only episode of that I've seen. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely going to pick up this show at some point. Yeah. But yeah. Parks and Recreation was... Its history is really weird because it was originally commissioned as a spinoff of The Office. Greg Daniels, uh, who created The Office for America, um, brought Mike Schur, who wrote for The American Office, and they were off to create this, this Office spinoff. It eventually morphed into a show about... Uh, parks, a small town parks and recreation government entity, mm-hmm. and they had Amy Poehler, and that's pretty much all they knew. And the pilot was just very much cobbled together at the last minute because NBC wanted a pilot. And then they did the same thing they did with The American Office, just a six episode first season. Most of that season is not good. I think the pilot is the worst. Episodes two, three, four, and five are not 
like unwatchable. They're just not very good. Episode 6, the end of that season, is when they start to put the pieces into place. The basic thing is that at the beginning, they were basically having Amy Poehler play a female Michael Scott. Yeah. And that was stupid. That's not what Amy Poehler... That's not her skill set, and I don't think that's what would make this setting funny. So instead they realized, instead of like mocking this character for loving her job and loving government, they realized, well, she's actually very good at her job. That's something to admire, and all the other characters should admire her for it. And so basically the switch that made Parks and Rec great is that they realized Leslie Nope is kind of like the greatest human being in the world, and they decided to center the comedy around that. And I think that's a very bold choice, because that's not something you typically do, where a really, really good person is the center of a comedy. Yeah. But that's what they did, and she's great at her job, and she's, people love her for it, and they, everyone respects Leslie Nope, and that's, from there, everything else just fell into place. All the other characters, and I cannot say enough good things about Amy Poehler on this show. She is just one of my heroes, because she is so fucking good on Parks and Recreation, where she is, she's, she's not the straight woman, she's very crazy at times, but she grounds the show in these emotional realities, She's very capable. She shows that, you know, Leslie Nope is a hugely capable person, but she's also hugely funny and warm and just, just a great character, great performance. I love Amy Poehler, and I'm so glad that she has this show because I think this will forever be the best thing she ever does. This is just the role of a lifetime for any comedian, and she has hit it out of the park every single week since episode six. <laughs> Those first five, no one was good. It was just, just, you can, and I should say this if you want to watch Parks and Recreation, Start at the season one finale, episode six. You will you will pick it up very fast. It's not a hugely complex show. It's a comedy. You know, you'll get it. And if you don't want to suffer through those first five, which are still only, you know, that's like 90 minutes of watching. It's not much. Mm-hmm. But if you want to skip those 90 minutes, start on episode six, and it's, it's just fantastic from there on out. One of the things that makes it so great is it is, I think, the most consistent comedy on television. There are some others that I think I've seen in my life that have reached higher highs, like The Simpsons, um... Uh, Arrested Development, maybe, maybe Community here and there, but no other show I've ever seen, comedy or drama in many cases, is just as consistent as Parks and Recreation. It's just, it's great, 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 and then once in a while, very good. And that's as slow as it sinks, and that's, I, that's incredible to me. But the whole cast is wonderful. I, I highlighted Amy Poehler, but the most, the funniest character on American TV these last couple of years has been Nick Offerman as Ron Swanson, or Ron fucking Swanson, as we call him, because he is just awesome, and he's the head of the Parks Department, but he's a libertarian who hates government and is trying to, like, kind of bring it down from the inside out, but he's a man's man. He does wood carving, loves bar- his barbecues, and he's just so funny, but also another character that is just warm, and he's still... You know, he's he's kind of off in his own world sometimes because he hates the government while being a government agent, but he still likes other people that he knows very well. He doesn't like being annoyed by citizens and things like that, but he's, you know, he's not the character who's just like the curmudgeon in the corner. They still, he's still part of this optimistic world and an organic part of that. Aubrey Plaza is just a revelation each and every week as April. Chris Pratt is like basically the modern day live action Homer Simpson. Um, as Andy Dwyer, Aziz Ansari is the character they have the toughest time with, with Tom Haverford. Sometimes he can be annoying in ways, I think, beyond what he's supposed to be, but for the most part, great character, um, and lots of great side characters here and there. Um, obviously, Rashida Jones is sort of the straight woman on the show as, as Leslie's best friend, but I think she's always served a valuable function just being there and being sort of the sane woman next to Leslie Nope, who's kind of kind of insane because she's very 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 peppy and and then this show really to me took off as one of the all-time great tv shows at the end of season two when they brought on two new cast members adam scott 
and Rob Lowe. And Adam Scott becomes Leslie's love interest. He's Ben Wyatt. And he just, I think, especially Adam Scott, that's just when the show clicked into ultimate greatness for comedy and the cast became complete. And Rob Lowe is really, really, really funny as Chris Traeger, who's a really another really great character and kind of is one of the defining parts of Parks and Recreation, I think. But I love this show. And, you know, I definitely, part of me hesitated putting it on here because it isn't finished yet, obviously. Yeah. And, but here's the thing. It's very low rated, and it would have been canceled by now if NBC weren't a flaming train wreck. Yeah, if NBC weren't really low rated. <laughs> yes. And so Parks Recreation endures. I mean, their recent fifth season they're doing, episode 13 of that season is a series finale. <laughs> and it is in every single way a series finale. Leslie and Ben get married. They do it inside the Parks Department. Like, everyone's there. They have these final lines that are very telling, and then it's over. But then they got renewed, so they had to do eight, nine more episodes this season. And those so far have been really, really good, too. And it's just, just, just great. It's just kind of funny. The show's still going because NBC's in dire straits. Yeah. But I don't see it extending past a sixth season because at a certain point, NBC's just going to go out of business. Yeah. If, if they have to keep renewing Parks and Recreation, and I hate to say this because I love the show, if they have to keep renewing a show as low-rated as that, they will be going out of business very soon. And so Parks and Recreation probably does not have a lot of time left. That does not make me sad. It's had its... I, I don't need a show to be ten seasons long. Yeah. We, we saw how that destroyed The Office, but... <laughs> no but I, Parks and Recreation, at its, at its worst, has always been better than The Office was, I think, at its, at its best. And so I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to still be great, and I have no worries about that. And even if season six turned out to be a letdown, let's say... It wouldn't ruin the other sh- seasons of the show for me, and it would not change its spot on my top ten TV shows because those episodes will always exist, and they will always make me really, really happy even just thinking about them. So that's why I love this show. Cool. And it's too bad the only one you've seen is the pilot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I said, I'm definitely going to get into it when I have more time, probably yeah. when the show's finished airing. Right. It's, and it's all on Netflix. That's, that's another... It's, it's one of those shows that they've got on Netflix. Be careful, though... In several spots, they have the episode orders wrong on Netflix, and I don't oh, know why. I hate that. So just keep keep Wikipedia yeah. up. It's a little All weird. The, I've gotten into that habit whenever I stream a show. I'm like, I'm going to check the fucking yeah. Wikipedia to know the goddamn episode order because like it's happened four or five times with shows that I've watched. It's like. God damn it. Like, yeah. everything's all fucked up now. It's like, it, it always takes you, like, a good ten minutes to realize, oh, fuck, I, there was a, there's an episode missing here, isn't there? Yes. So just be careful with that. I uh, I did it right the first time I watched the show. Second time I watched it, um, I was just being lazy. I just assumed that's what it was. And I got into one episode, I'm like, there was a... I know there's something missing yeah. here. So like, what the fuck are these people talking about? Yeah. God damn it. So... Love Parks and Rec. So that was my number eight, so it's time for your number yes. seven. Yes. I'm really happy that I get to pop the anime cherry on this podcast. <laughs> my number seven is a very, very violent, destructive, gory number seven. It is the anime show called Claymore. And Sounds violent. It's a Claymore. Yeah. And man, how the fuck do I talk about this show? So Claymore is, it's adapted from a, an ongoing manga, it's, I assume it's still going now. It certainly kept on going on past the point where the show aired, but it uh, aired in the year of 2007, it got 26 episodes, which is a pretty long season for, most anime tend to get 12 to 13 episode long seasons, and, you know, there's almost no chance that they're going to keep on doing it, which is kind of sad, because it doesn't have a ending, like, it has a decent sort of ending, but it's like, clearly, they did not defeat the primary antagonist at the end of the show, which kind of sucks, but... Basically, the general premise of Claymore is it's this sort of medieval Germanic sort of setting, which is one of the first things that I absolutely loved about the show when I started watching it, is that is 
a very strange setting for an anime, and that's one of the things that's really interesting about it is that it is set in this like medieval Grimm's fairy tale kind of world where you have these demon monsters called Yoma, and the only way that the Yoma can be defeated, who they like, they're these big like shape shifting monster things that basically eat people, and the only way to defeat them is to have these things called claymores, which are women that are sort of infused with the blood of Yoma, and so they're sort of like half monsters, and they go around killing the Yoma for the people. But everybody's fucking terrified of the Claymores because they're half-monster crazy women, and all the Claymores will eventually sort of succumb to their evil Yoma blood and become, like, super-powerful monsters in and of themselves. And so that's sort of the setup of the show, and what happens is you follow the main character, Claire, which introduces the first great thing about this show is that the fact that it is set in this, like, Germanic setting is that all the character names are English names, except for the main, like, male character, Rocky, Who's that's at least it's like it's very Japanese looking. Is there a Mickey too? No. Okay. But uh, but like the, all the names are these like proper English names. So having like characters try to say Claire, like Japanese people say Claire, like, really dramatic fashion, really really great. It's it's really great. Like Kudera, it's fantastic. And then I should say I, I watched the show. Like a dub, I know a dub exists. I don't know any of the quality of the dub. I watched it in the original Japanese with the subtitles. It's one of the more recent Funimation ones, so I'm yeah. sure it's fine. Yeah, it probably is. But uh, so this this character Claire, who's one of the, like the newer Claymores, she's she's the weakest rated out of all of them because they're 47. And she's number 47. She comes to this club town to defeat Yoma and the like. The sort of the audience proxy at this point, who's like the biggest problem with the show that they fucking ditch. And they ditch fast is the character Rocky, who he he's the, this like young boy. His family is killed by Yoma, and Claire then kills that Yoma, and that's sort of the first episode. And Ro- and Rocky sort of follows her out of town, is sort of entranced by her, is one of the only people not afraid of her, and sort of he's got nothing left because his entire family, the entire family was killed. The town is sort of like you know shunning him because his like they feel like his family and maybe like his blood is attracting Yoma so they don't want him in the town and so they they kick him the fuck out and so he follows Claire and so the rest of the show at that point presumably just sort of follows on their adventures but it gets far more interesting past that point where like the next few episodes are just him following Claire and she goes to this town and defeats a Yoma she almost succumbs to her Yoma blood going crazy and that's all okay. That's like that's the first four episodes. It was decent. The part where I fell in love with the show, and the pretty much the reason the show is on here, is the next four episodes are a flashback arc where you find out the past of Claire, how she became a Claymore, and you follow Teresa, who was the most powerful Claymore like thirty or something years ago, and she's and you just sort of follow her along and for these four episodes and what she is doing, and she's like Claire has a very similar backstory to Rocky. Her family is killed by by Yoma. Th- Teresa kills that Yoma. Claire sort of follows her, and at first Teresa like wants nothing to do with her because she Teresa is this walking fucking killing machine that's like basically completely sociopathic and wants nothing to do with humanity because humanity has always shunned her. Eventually, they sort of like she sort of warms up to her because Claire just kind of just keeps on following her until she passes out and almost dies from starvation. So she sort of starts taking care of her. And so the first two episodes in this flashback arc are just kind of establishing their relationship in in a really, really great way where it feels really natural that Teresa tries to shun Claire at first, but then sort of slowly, very slowly starts warming up to her until eventually uh, then Claire, uh, then 
humans then have to try to kill Claire because they they think that Claire is like attracting uh, Yoma blood. And there's sort of these bandits, and they go in and they try to kill Claire. And one of the main things, like the biggest thing, Claymores cannot do is kill humans. Like that is totally against the rules of their organization. And so to protect Claire, Teresa like slaughters this group of like twenty fucking dudes, and in a fucking gory, just like this entire show is completely gory really over-the-top violent. She, like, massacres all these guys, and so now the, the Claymore organization has to go kill Teresa. And that's sort of... So then the next two episodes are they send the next most five powerful Claymores to go kill Teresa. And this is where it gets fucking fantastic because the action scenes in the show are fucking phenomenal. They are really over-the-top, great anime action, super violent because it's all with, like, these huge fucking swords. And what happens in is that this uh, one Claymore, Priscilla starts slowly succumbing to her Yoma blood. And in the like previous story arc you had seen Claire slowly coming to her Yoma succumbing to her Yoma blood. And you sort of so you sort of know at this point how this plays out is that then this like these other characters sort of like calm her down until the point where either she like like is able to come back from that or they have to kill her because it's always like, you know, kill me, kill me, I don't want to become a monster kind of thing. So you expect, this is what is going to happen, is that now Teresa has basically defeated these other Claymores, except for Priscilla, who's succumbing to her blood. She's begging her to kill her, and so Teresa goes up, and instead of killing her, like, you totally expect this, because you have seen this exact scenario play out, instead, Priscilla cuts Teresa's fucking hands off in the most violent thing I have ever seen Ever, completely out of nowhere, cuts her hands off, still holding the sword. Then there's this low camera shot on Teresa's face, like completely horrified. The camera zooms up on her face, and then Priscilla cuts her head off, which then flies and rolls and rolls up to Claire's knees. And that sequence, that like one minute sequence, is why this show is on this list because it is the only thing I have ever seen that is violent that has made me fucking horrified. It's the only thing I have ever seen. In movies, TVs, games, whatever you, I've seen violent fucking shit. But the way they make violence a reality in this show when they decide to, by fucking cutting her hands off, and in like this two seconds, just the way they animate her face, you go through this entire process of, she doesn't have hands. Like, what is that like now? You're in like 15th century Germany, you don't have hands. Like, you are, like, you would, like, see your entire life now and how horrific it is now going to be because your fucking hands got cut off. And the show, like, past that point sort of continues with that theme of it being really violent, really dark, really oppressive, and when the violent shit happens, it fucking affects you, or at least it did me, and that is why the show is on, is on here, because this show beat me, I guess. Like, it deserves its fucking place, because it kicked me in the goddamn balls. Is that violent? Is that, like, just the way they fucking draw it is not, you know... Like, in real life, getting a limb severed off, where that limb is severed off is, like, this bloody fucking mess. It is, like, just completely gnarled and disgusting. In this show, when you get your hands cut off, it's like, all it is is that your arm just stops. It just stops dead flat, and there are just no hands there anymore. And that, like, the way it makes that reality of it so clear with it being so fake is what's so So amazing about it. Yeah, it's that, it's, yeah, it's like... And it's one of the great things about anime and animation in general, is that since you're in this entirely fake representation of reality, you're able to get across how reality feels way more than how, like, actually seeing real images does. Because for me, when you see, like, a horror movie that tries to show you something really violent, 
And this is why I always feel like people saying, oh, like, you know, violent shit on TV makes people violent in real life, or violent shit in video games or movies make you violent in real life. is total bullshit, because you know instinctively that, like, you... I've never, like, watched something on screen where I react, like, in this, like, really horrified, if I had seen that sort of violence enacted in real life kind of way, because... Real violence is real, and you know it the second you fucking see it. And this anime, the way they they draw that violence and convey it to you with with the, with that animation and with the sort of the expressions on the face and stuff like that, is the closest I've ever seen to creating that feeling of like I have just seen someone's fucking hands get cut off. Like, yeah. it is fucking incredible. And past that point, the I don't even know how much more I need to really say about the show. Past that point, it's like. It's really great because, like, fucking Rocky, get rid of him because he's just an annoying character. He's really only a main part of the show for, like, those first four episodes. And the rest of it sort of follows Claire, where that, like, that four-episode flashback is meant to sort of set up her character arc, which is to hunt down Priscilla, who's become sort of this, like, arc fiend, super powerful after she gave into her Yoma blood. And so that's what the rest of the show is sort of about. And the last fight between Claire and Priscilla, when Priscilla's, like deck the fuck out in, like, her Yoma form, and then Claire sort of has to come to her Yoma blood, is absolutely spectacular. And just, again, super fucking violent, super over-the-top, unbelievably gory. And, but, and, like, what the only thing that I'm really disappointed about is that, like, you don't... Like, I'm almost compelled to pick up the manga, but I don't think it would, like, reflect the same thing as, like, what the anime did for me. But I, I would really like to see how the, that story ends and sort of what, because... Priscilla does not get defeated in the end because obviously this is a long, long, ongoing series. It was it like the manga started in two thousand one. There are twenty three volumes, so it sort of has that problem that a lot of anime has yeah. of you're this adaptation of this like incredibly long running material that chances are the anime is not going to be successful enough. Whereas the manga does not have like those high standards for success, so it can just keep on going. Yeah. But yeah, for the it, record, I I do think the Claymore manga is available on the Viz Media app. Uh, on your iPad, iPhone, Android devices. So it's super easy to get in English, and I just looked up. You can get the whole series on DVD and Blu-ray and a complete series box from Funimation for cheap. So yeah, yeah, easy yeah, to definitely. find. It's not... This, if, you, if you have not watched anime before, do not start with this one. For the love of God, do not start with this one. Like, this is not a beginner's sort of anime. This is definitely yeah. only if you've watched a lot of anime before. And if you cannot stomach violence, fucking do not watch this, because I... I can stomach violence really well. It does not affect me. It fucking affected me here. This show beat me. This show, like, earned its place, fucking thought its place onto this list, so that is why it is my number seven. Yeah. So, let's move on to yours. Is it also something about, like, fucking, like, women getting decapitated and fucking hands flying everywhere? Like, the most horrible thing you've ever seen in your life? No, this is this is a much saner show. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Sad. I feel like I should have turned into the skid here and put on like, like I don't even know. Is there? Is there, Would there be a good compliment to Claymore for? No. No. Okay. No. God. No. All right. Well, we will be going in a very different direction now because good. my good. let's dig ourselves like I'm. I'm fucking like depressed and horrified over here. Like rethinking through those scenes. Those like five frames of animation are ingrained in my fucking corneas, man. I cannot unsee that shit. All right. My number seven favorite show of all time is Joss Whedon's sci-fi western masterpiece, Firefly. And I think the only way I can start this discussion is to acknowledge that at the moment, I despise Firefly fans. So yeah, no. They're one of the most annoying fan bases on the fucking planet. And it makes it, it's, it really 
pisses me off because it makes it so tough for me to just sit down and remember that I love this show. Yeah, same with me. And that this is one of my favorite pieces of fiction of all times, let alone TV. Mm-hmm. I just, I love yeah. Firefly. I should say, like, Firefly was really close to making it on my list. Yeah. And I just think this is a great show. But to me, when I got to episode 14, and I think this is the split between me which is and Sean. Which is the best episode, by the way. It's so good. Yeah. So the good. The Hunter guy. Yeah. Fucking great. Jubal Early. Love Jubal Early. Anyway, and I love how that episode ends. We're yeah. just like, well, here I am. Yeah. <laughs> Which kind of sums up Firefly. Yeah, definitely. In this weird existential way. But anyway. Um, so I think this is the split between maybe Sean and I and yeah. annoying Firefly fans. Yeah. Is that when I got to episode 14, I said, I just saw 14 episodes, 14 of the best episodes of TV I've ever seen. And I am happy to have those. And I am eager to watch the movie and see how this story finishes. But I did not sit there and be like, oh, fucking Fox, I should just cancel the show. I'm so mad. They should, like, bring it back so we can get more episodes. <laughs> I hate Firefly fans. Yeah, they I just don't, like, for God, like, what was it on the air in 2002, 2003? It's 11 years old. Shut yeah, it's, up. It's done. It's dead and buried. Like, fucking, we, we dragged it up and got a really awesome movie, too. Yeah. And finished it. Firefly is fucking done. Get over it. Joss Whedon's doing other shit. Nathan Fillion is doing other shit. Everyone. Let's move on with our lives. It's just, to me, it's like, I need to get this out of the way first because it, I think it colors how people view Firefly now. And here's the thing. If Firefly was in such dire need of more episodes or a new movie or any of that stuff, that it, if it was in the dire need that fans make it out to be, it would not be a great show. It would not even be a good show yeah. because it would mean it got nothing. Yeah. It would mean it just kind of set the premise and then didn't do anything with it. But that's the brilliant thing about Firefly is that it's one of the best just seasons of TV out there because they hit the ground running. The pilot is brilliant. Episode 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, all the way through 14, they are all brilliant. They didn't have to have this learning curve. And that's the thing that happens with a lot of canceled TV shows where when I want there to be more of a show, it's because the show did not realize its full potential, but yeah. it so clearly could have. The example for me of that is Terminator the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Which also stars Summer Glau. And that's a show that I really liked, but I can't call it a great TV show because it did not hit greatness in its two seasons. Yeah, it was, it was fucking what they hinted at with season three would have been fucking amazing, though. Yeah. And that's why I would like to see more of that show someday, although even now it's been, you know, five fucking years. It's yeah. too late. I don't I don't go to sleep crying about that. Yeah. As I'm sure all Firefly fans do for some yeah. reason. But that's the thing to me. Like, Terminator is not a great show because it did not get to be great. Fox cut it off, and for totally good reasons. They, yeah. they gave Terminator every chance. It's not Fox's fault Terminator failed. In fact, I mean, this is a whole other rant about people bitching at networks for canceling shows. It's, it's your fault if you weren't yeah, watching yeah. it. That's, networks need to make money because the shows cost money to make. Yeah. Quit your bitching. That's how the world works. But anyway, and obviously Firefly is a different case because Fox actively sabotaged the show. They also funded and put it on the air. So give them some credit. Yeah. They did a terrible job putting it on the air. They aired it all out of order. They cut episodes out. And Firefly is not a show that works like that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you could get into Firefly without seeing the pilot, and they didn't air the pilot. So that's a problem. Yeah. You know, the pilot, it is such a complex premise, they, they need those two hours. And that mm-hmm. pilot is, in many ways, the best episode of the sh- in. I mean... Other than it, episode 14. Well, I was just saying, it's in many ways so one of the more impressive feats in yeah. the series because they introduce so much so economically yeah. in those two hours and tell a good story at the same time. That's something that's usually very difficult to do. 
But, you know, so I just need to get that out of the way. I hate Firefly fans. You know, there's been this whole thing this week that we were thinking about doing a little bit on, but I, I don't want to get into it. The Veronica Mars thing on Kickstarter. Good for Veronica Mars fans. It is really, 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 really skeevy and creepy that Warner Brothers is outsourcing the money for their productions to fans. Yeah. I think that's, that's terrible, and I don't like that. But now, you know, everyone's saying, oh, now we can do this with Firefly and finally get Firefly Justin's back. like, no, yeah. because fucking Firefly's done, goddammit. Like, yeah. And by the way, did you not see the Avengers? I got shit going on, guys. Yeah. I have got money to make over here. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, I just need to get that out of the way. Because yeah. Firefly yeah. fans live in the moment, guys. The show ended. Yeah, get the fuck out. Watch another show. If you're listening to this podcast, pick one of these ones that you haven't watched. Go watch Claymore. Be scarred for your life. There you go. You'll forget about Firefly in a second. And I, and I think this just comes down to a general philosophical difference between me and a lot of other TV fans is that I don't need more of something to enjoy what there yeah. is. I, if there were 15 episodes of Firefly, that would not make the original 14 better. That's that We got 14 great episodes, and... Yeah, I would want more if we did not get the movie. That's yeah, yeah, because the movie wraps up like hanging plot points from the yeah. rest of the show. But and the movie to me is my one of my probably my favorite thing associated with the show. I think the movie. Oh, the episode fourteen. Okay, episode fourteen is the best Firefly thing there is. It's it's great. But anyway, I love the movie, and, and but the thing is, we don't live in a world where the movie wasn't made. Yeah, exactly. the movie was made, and it did things perfectly, and I'm fine with that. And I think the the one of my, the things I actually love about Firefly is that it's 14 episodes, a movie, and that's all there is. Yeah. And that makes me love it even more because they did that much greatness in those six, 17 hours. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So let's talk about the actual show. Okay. Now that we've covered the groundwork. Yeah. Now I think I've hinted at just, you know, to me one of the most miraculous things about Firefly is that every episode... Maybe with the exception of episode two, the train job, which they had to make in a rush to be a second yeah. pilot, they're pretty much all home runs. And I think they're, they're just, I love all of them, and I love all of them in different ways, and I kind of love that each kind of stands on its own as these different, just great, like, pieces of television. Yeah. Um, but what makes Firefly what it is, is because, I think, two reasons. One is the cast is just fantastic, and the way they're written is great, and the way they interact is amazing. And the other thing is that it is the smartest, sharpest thing Joss Whedon has ever done. Mm-hmm. It is, I think Joss Whedon is a guy who has obviously lots of thematic, philosophical aspirations. A lot of that came across in Buffy. Um, I think even some of it comes across in something like The Avengers. Yeah. But Firefly was his chance to finally make something, I think, fully, obviously a very funny show, but something fully dramatic that expresses things he thinks about the world. And it's fascinating to watch the philosophy of this show yeah. and these ideas of what what outcasts are, how societies function, how, you know, these, these interesting ideas of like a post-Civil War society, but from the loser's side, um, to all these discussions of morality that are in there throughout the show, it's, it's all very good, and also dealing with characters who are, by their very nature, very unscrupulous. They are yeah. pirates, and he doesn't shy away from the fact that they are pirates and thieves, and, yeah. you know, Jane Cobb is one of the most fascinating characters, because he's pretty much a bad guy through most of the show. Mm-hmm. He's not a good person at yeah. really any point. Until maybe once he's maybe in the movie he's a better guy. But yeah. Even then he's he wants to sell out River and like you know kill her. Mm-hmm. So I think that's all very good. But again, it, it mostly just comes back to the fact that this cast is so great. Nathan Fillion, he's, he's, he will never get something better than this. But he was he, he's good in everything he does. I'm just yeah. saying this is sort of one of the ultimate TV leading roles, uh, Captain Malcolm Reynolds, and he he kills it. And I think what's so interesting is that. 
my favorite modes of Firefly are is the really dark modes where like Malcolm is an incredibly dark character yeah. and just so scarred. And they sadly had to move away from that after the pilot because Fox forced them to. They get back to it in the latter half of the show, and then Heavy Duty and Serenity the movie, where he is one fucked up motherfucker. Yeah. Um, but Nathan Fillion, what's so amazing about his performance is that he can he can get these multiple sides of the character, the really dark stuff, and then make him really funny, and it never feels like different characters. Yeah. And I think that's really impressive. And he's great there. You've got Alan Tudyuk, who is hilarious throughout, but yeah. also very dramatically potent when he needs to be. Gina Torres as the that character's wife, who's also the second in command on the on the Serenity, who is just a really great foil for Mal in that she's kind of like that same hard ass, but without the comic side. Yeah, she can be funny when she needs to be too, but she's very you know threatening and imposing. Morena Baccarin, who has also probably never been better than she is here. Not a, not necessarily her character is uh, fully realized on this show, I think. Is one yeah, of the few and, yeah, and, yeah, that was the one character that I felt like, you guys don't know quite what to do with her. But I think there are individual episodes where they did know, yeah. and there's some really good stuff with that character. Um, my probably first, one of my personal favorite parts of the show is Adam Baldwin, who is so freaking good as Jane Cobb. Yeah. Just hilarious, but also really imposing when he needs to be. And uh, we will talk about him again on this list because he's another part of one of my favorite shows. Uh, Jewel State, who I, I'm really sad I've never seen her in anything else because I love that character. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think I've seen her in anything else either. Yeah. Uh, Kaylee. just I love Kaylee. She's really funny. She's kind of an essential part being kind of like the younger sister on the ship. Yeah. And just really great character. And then, uh, you know, and also obviously it's, it's easy to say that Sean Maher's characters and Summer Glau's character, River Tam and Simon Tam, were not fully realized on the series either, but they get the movie, and that's, yeah, that's yeah. where they're important. Because the show is building up to their story. Um, but in, even then, there's an episode, I think it's called Safe, which is like four or five, where those two are like, they get abandoned on a planet, and they, they think Summer Glau's a witch. There's yeah, some really good stuff yeah. there. Um, and of course there's Ron Glass as Shepard Book. And and Shepard Book is actually one of my favorite corners of the show because I think you know Joss Whedon is a you know very out and proud atheist and he has really interesting things to say about religion in this show that I think are very meaningful and, and very interesting um, without just going and just bashing people who are religious because yeah. he can that's that doesn't really get you anywhere mm-hmm. so that's it's really interesting and yeah so I love Firefly I. Yeah, it's it's hard to argue with episode fourteen being the best. Although, God, my so fucking good. My favorite just to watch. I always have to say is Janestown because Jamestown's pretty good. It's, it's got the Jane song, and I love that. And it's it's a really funny episode. Episode fourteen has the bounty hunter dude. Yes, it does. That guy is fucking great. You want to talk about the bounty hunter dude? It's the fucking bounty hunter dude. He's like he's existentialism in a character, just yeah. like boiled down on that ship. I think that's like. I think that is the. Did Joss Whedon write that episode? Yeah, yeah. That is, that, that's, that's the, the best. best thing. That's the best thing, in my opinion. Joss Whedon has ever written. I think like, I that have, character is fucking great. I think that whole episode because Joss Whedon is an existentialist. He talks yeah. about this a lot. It's in a lot of his stuff. This was the episode where I guess he just figured we're canceled anyway, so <laughs> yeah, fuck so it. Fuck it. Here we uh, go. We're gonna write the weirdest episode I can write, and I think I agree. It's probably the best thing he's ever yeah. done because it was just that's Joss Whedon in his purest form. Yeah. And that's also actually the best use of Summer Glau anywhere on this show. I agree. Because yeah. she's fantastic in that one. Um, because she's sort of the other side of that coin. Although, she's really good in Serenity, kicking ass, ballet style. Yeah. I have to put that out there. But yeah. Yeah, Objects in Space, wonderful. But I love all these episodes. I love ones like Trash, where they just throw up, they, they do like a big heist or aerial. Yeah. But with the two with Christina Hendricks, um, I mean, the funniest episode of the series is Our Mrs. Reynolds, 
with Christina Hendricks as his yeah. wife. <laughs> air quotes. That's yeah. that's a hilarious one. There's the, what's the what is it like the one where uh, Mal is sort of like stranded on the ship. He's been shot out of gas. That's, yeah, that one's really really great. That's where we kind of learn the origin story of everyone. That's sort of like I think the best ignoring the pilot, the best dramatic episode. That there's not like. There's some humor in it in some of the flashbacks, but it's, yeah. it's not, like, overtly funny. No. It's like, Wash has a mustache in the past, right? That's yeah. That's fantastic. All right. So, that's that's my number seven. That's Firefly. Anything else to say about it? I don't think so. Just Again, shut fan, up about... Fans are horrible. It's just, like, shut the fuck up. Watch episode 14. The show yeah. would have never gotten better than that. Like, that's... To me, that is why it's okay that that show stopped, because that show never would have beaten episode 14, at least for me, personally. Yeah. Like, episode 14 was so fucking good, that show never would have gotten better than that. So, like, it ended at the absolute brightest spot it could ever reach. The other thing I think is worth pointing out is that the show was never going to be a hit or a success under any parameters. If yeah. Fox, yeah. If Fox had aired it in their best time slot, all in order, given it all this promotion, it still would have failed and gotten canceled. And yeah. that's, it just wasn't a show that America was ready for back then. I don't think if it just came out fresh today, it would be a hit yeah. at all. People don't, what are the two things that don't succeed on television or in movies? Westerns and sci-fi. Yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't yeah. going to succeed. So, be happy we got what we got. I mean, the fucking show is even on Blu-ray. I, I, there's a lot of TV shows from this period that will never get a yeah. high-def release. You have gotten everything you could ask for with this show. Dude, they fucking got a movie. Yeah. Like, the fact that Serenity got made is amazing. And it was a $40 million yeah. movie. It was a healthy budget, yeah. too. Yeah. So, yeah, Firefly fans, be happy. Watch episode 14. Quit your bitch. fucking movie. Yeah, yeah. shut the fuck. Go just, like, go talk about something else. Go find yeah. another banner to carry, you know? Yeah, like like Orphans in Africa or something. Or, you know, <laughs> Terminator the Seracana Chronicles. Sure. Or something really important. All right. What's your number six, Sean? My number six, where I'm doubling up on my anime. Good. We've got this is a show. It's called Angel Beats, and you have to say it like that because it has very specifically an exclamation point at the end of the title. Angel Beats. Angel Beats. Angel Beats is really interesting because as an anime, it is one of the. It actually might be the only anime I've actually seen that is not adapted from anything at all. It is. It was an original animation production. It's then there are manga and light novels adapted from it. But originally, its original form is in an anime. It's 13 episodes. That is it. I mean, it has an OVA that I haven't seen, but whatever. I'm sure it's okay. But, like, the actual story, it's 13 episodes, completely concise. It's, like, the opposite of Claymore, where it's, like... Or, or it's, like, it's actually it's very much like Firefly, where it's, like, it is these episodes, this is it. Like, I mean, Firefly, obviously, also needed the movie for the ongoing storyline, but it's, like, these are... 13 great episodes, There's we don't need any more. I mean, the story completely wraps up. You actually, you couldn't do any more with Angel Beats. But, effectively, the, and this is also, this is the exact opposite of Claymore, that this show is not violent. I mean, there's there is some violence in it, but it's like very cartoony, over-the-top violence. It's not, you know, oh my god, your hands have been cut off. Like, oh, Jesus, you're going to have to live the rest of your life without hands. What is that going to be like? This is a lot more fun, it's a lot, it's really funny, but it's also really dramatic, it's fucking depressing as shit, it's kind of bittersweet in the end. It's sort of, this is when I said, if you have not watched anime, do not watch Claymore. In a way, I would say, if you haven't watched anime, Angel Beats would actually be a really nice introduction, because I think, one, it is completely standalone, it's only 13 episodes, so you can just, you know, you can get through it in like three or four days, and that's it. It's not like this huge time commitment. And if you like Angel Beats... You're going to like the vast majority of anime that is out there. Like I said, is good because it's the premise for Angel Beats is that 
sort of this uh, your main character uh, Yuzuru Otanashi he wakes up in this world he he's lost his memory he doesn't know what's happened it's sort of like he's at this high school and he later he meets all these sort of like crazy characters who are all fighting this other character called Angel or Tenshi and they, he meets this like one crazy girl named Yuri and he uh, quickly finds out that all the people in this world, at least that what they're telling him is that this is sort of like limbo, where everybody here has died, and some of the people who died, like, some of them retain their memories, some of them don't, and they're sort of here, they don't know why they're here, they don't, like, there's a lot of this sort of, like, religious stuff about, like, they don't know, like, if God put them here, if there is a God, like, who this person that they just call Angel, but they don't really know who she is or what she is, and she keeps on attacking them for some reasons... There are all these, like, people walking about that they call NPCs or non-player characters that just, like, don't interact with anything. They have no personality. They just, like, fill out this school. And so the, most of the show is spent with the Otanashi trying to figure out what is going on here? Why is he here? Why are these people here? What are we, like, supposed to do here? Like, what is all of this? And he sort of interacts with this really large cast of characters that are all... Really, really fantastic, and I think one of the great things about the show is that I think for me the standout episode is I believe it's episode six or seven. It's about it's about halfway through the series is where this sort of this turning point where up till that point is just sort of him hanging out with the other characters, sort of trying to figure out what the mystery is, but he has no tools of like to figure out what's going on here. So sort of like living his life with these other characters who they've all been living in this limbo place for like a year or two, and so he's sort of the new the kid on the block. But then the episode six or seven is he sort of has a, he passes out and he regains his memories. And like that episode is all this flashback of what, like what happened on the day he died. It's actually, it's like this like week leading up to him dying because he dies basically of starvation because it's bother. It's like the subway train. Uh, there's like this the collapse in the subway tunnels and he helps all these people sort of like try to get through this horrible crisis then he like dies right when they're about to rescue him it's one of the saddest fucking things i've ever seen and that episode sort of this turning point where he realizes the, re the real reason they're here is to try to deal like everybody here has these sort of hang-ups from when they died and like, like all these people had these really sort of like tragic deaths it was just even more tragic because all these characters are high schoolers. And so he decides that he and Angel are going to team up and try to get everybody to sort of like deal with these issues they had when they died. And once they do, they can move on because they also see this other character sort of has that experience earlier on in the show and sort of figures out that's what's going on. And so past halfway point, all the show is about him trying to help all these characters move on. And it's really, really sad, And it's but it's also... It, like, like I said, it's, it's bittersweet is the tone I've used for the show. And, like, what... I mean, at the end of the day, really what the show is about is it's about high school graduation, really. Because it's about trying to move on in your life with all these people that you sort of come to know and love. And this show deals with it sort of in this really loose metaphor. I mean, it's kind of really obvious. I mean, the show ends with them graduating from high school in this really great scene. But... It deals with that idea of sort of like saying goodbye and leaving people you've come to care about a lot better than almost anything else I've seen. And the amount you come to care about all the characters in this really large cast over the course of just 13 episodes really helps make it feel, you feel really sad but kind of happy when these characters are able to move on. Because obviously, you know, the place they were in was not great. They were all like 
like everybody has this really tragic backstory, and so have like moving through all these characters and watching them sort of deal with this, having them a lot of the characters have to sort of like realize it themselves what they need to do, and sort of Otonashi just sort of helping them out in that way, and that sort of like helping him then achieve like his ability to move on is the show's just deals with that idea of high school graduation and leaving in the most mature way I've ever seen, and I think. I think what they should do when you have high school graduation, instead of having like a bunch of people give up speeches, is they should just like show this entire show. Just like that's it, that's it, that's all of graduation. Is just like this will help deal with all the emotions you are having right now. This is a very mature, intelligent way of dealing with it. Here you go. Here's Angel Beats. And move on. Like move on with your lives, like these characters. And that would still be shorter than the typical graduation ceremony. Exactly, and it'd be so much fucking better because there's also. If I had to pick out my favorite character, like, outside of the main cast, where my, my favorite, actual favorite character is Angel, who's this really fantastic character, but uh, there's this one guy, TK, who he's, he's actually voiced in Japanese by this guy, Michael Rivas, so he's voiced by an English guy, and TK only speaks in sort of, I don't know what the actual phrase for it is, but sort of like Japanese-Americanisms of like, just like, oh yeah, come on, alright, and he like never says anything of value. That character is fucking great because that's that is all the dialogue he has. Like he's never says anything substantial, but he's in all these like really great scenes. Just like let's go, guys, and it's TK is just fucking amazing, and all these characters are really great. And it's definitely a show I think anybody can watch. I think it, you know, and, and again, if you watch it, I think you're going to sort of fall in love with it. You're going to fall in love with the style, the humor, the characters, the drama of it, and then. That this thing is just a really good gateway anime into sort of in types of anime that are not just sort of like shonen fighting anime, which is sort of the most prominent type of anime that's over here. So watch this, and then watch Claymore, and then get beaten and depressed and fucking horrified and just like disgusted. You don't think they should maybe do something else in between? No, no, like go. Go from, like, this really, like, Angel Beats, you know, really bittersweet. It's, like, it's really sad that all these characters leave, but it's nice that they all got to, like, deal with these issues on their own. They're able to move on to better places in their life. Go from that to immediately, oh, my God, my hands have been cut off for fuck. Oh, Jesus Christ. Just immediately. Like, like through one day, just marathon both the series. But, yeah, that, that's Angel Beats. Definitely, definitely recommend this show. It's absolutely fantastic. All right. Well, my number six show, which is the last one we will be talking yes. about on this podcast, it on is. this episode, is also an anime. Yeah, is, an anime block goes undefeated so far. And I want to stress here something we mentioned earlier. This is not best TV shows yeah. list. This yeah. is favorites. Because if this were best, this would be higher on this list. And yeah. this would be... And I don't... It's just... And I also want to stress, I past number three. One, two, three for me were very easy to rank. Everything else I could have just drawn out of a hat. They were pretty much a, a tie for everything. This is more or less what it was for me, too. Yeah. And uh, this is my number six show is Full Metal Alchemist Hagane no Renkinjutsushi, and it is I I need to I guess I need to do some history here because yeah, I am yeah because I am, the show has a very sort of complicated backstory and you have a complicated backstory with it I I do actually it's it's interesting well it's that complicated but I mildly com- more complicated than just I watch the show well right because you can't just watch the show because there are two of them and I am amalgamating for this list when I say Full Metal Alchemist it means both Full Metal Alchemist 2003 and Full Metal Alchemist 2010 or 11, whenever the second series came out. In the West, they are called Full Metal Alchemist and then Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. Uh, they both come from a manga by Hiromu Arakawa. Uh, the manga is definitely the clearest, best version of the story, and I would definitely recommend reading that. That's probably actually, if you want to get into Full Metal Alchemist, 
read the manga first because it is the only easy way to get the story. Because yeah. it's just that's the story. That is what Full Metal Alchemist is, and it is one of the best fictional stories I have ever seen, and also one of the tightest. Where just every scene, all the way through those twenty-six volumes, counts, and it is builds up to one of the largest, longest, biggest, most epic conclusions. Of anything. It's kind of like building up to Return of the King, but if Return of the King were like 20 episodes of TV. But anyway, uh, Full Metal Alchemist was adapted into two separate TV shows. When the manga was starting out, I believe it, uh, it started in 2001, so the first anime started in 2003, because this is something you just you do in Japan, manga becomes popular, you make an anime out yeah. of it. Yeah. And so that first Full Metal Alchemist series started, and they were being fairly faithful with some filler here and there for the first 25 episodes or so to the manga, and then, I guess maybe they talked to Arakawa or something, and it became clear she was in this for the long haul, and mm-hmm. she was writing a very long series, and she was, uh, this was not published in Weekly Shonen Jump, this was in Monthly Shonen Gangan, so it was a monthly series, so it took a long time to publish those 27 volumes, but anyway, she was in this for the long haul, I guess they weren't, even though this was a very popular property, they just wanted to do one year of the anime. So the second half of that first anime is not based on the manga. After episode 25, it goes off in its own direction. It does end and everything, but it has its yeah. own own story. It has its own explanation for sort of the mythology of the series, the backstory of certain characters, and obviously how it ends. And what's interesting is it ends on a much more melancholy note than the manga. And and I guess this is the show I have to start by talking And I also should mention, it. they kind of resolved that story further in a movie that followed the anime called Full Metal Alchemist, The Conqueror of Shambhala, which is not great, but if you like that first anime, you, you should watch it, because it kind of... I actually think the anime has a very good conclusion, but they decided to kind of follow up on it in that movie. But I think this original anime has been kind of overshadowed, because in, you know, later on, in 2009, it turns out, they, they came back, and Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, the second series, was just a direct adaptation of the manga. Yeah. And it was 64 episodes instead of 51, which is the original series. So, and it was just, that's, they're, they're separate, then that one does the manga. But the original Full Metal Alchemist, you know, it gets overshadowed because of that, but it is a fan-fucking-tastic TV series. And it is, the animation is just stellar from start to finish, the voice acting in English or Japanese is some of the best you will ever hear. Anime or non-anime is just superior. And I think the story is great even when they de- deviate from the manga. It is really good. And Full Metal Alchemist is a series that will hit you in the balls over and over and over again. You talked about Claymore just yeah. wrecking you. Full Metal yeah. Alchemist is obviously not It's not a super violent series that yeah, does that. It's not the same way. But I think it operates with very, very real emotions about loss and about love and about just trying to find a way to be whole in a world that kind of is difficult to feel whole in. And it's does this through some metaphors. The, the main character, Edward Elric, and Alphonse Elric, the main two characters, they're brothers. They are both very talented alchemists. Edward's a prodigy and genius, and Alphonse is younger, so he's not quite at that level, but he you know, gets there. And uh, their mother dies, and their father had left them long ago. And their, their mother dies from their kids, and so they decide they are going to try human transmutation, which is forbidden in this world. This world is all based on alchemy, by the way. And, um, or, alchemy in air quotes. It's it's really just magic, but they call it alchemy, and it's rooted in these scientific so, ideas. So it's, it's not all about just, like, dudes turning lead into gold and then finding philosopher's stones? No, because it is all about finding philosopher's stones. Oh, okay. Um, in the second, in the manga more than in the uh, original anime, although the philosopher's stone still plays into this. But they are trying to do human transmutation, which is forbidden, and that's where you basically you are going to use alchemy to bring someone back to life. 
and they try to do this with their mother, and basically by encroaching on, you know, God's territory by doing this, um, Edward... Alphonse's body is taken from him, and to save Alphonse, Edward sacrifices his arm and his leg to put him in a suit of armor. His soul, like, bonded to a suit of armor. So that's why you always see the main, you know, art, key art of the series is this guy with a full metal arm and the yeah. guy in a, in a suit. Uh, but he's not really in a suit. The suit is empty. Um, and that's his brother Alphonse, and he's younger. And then there's lots of jokes about Edward being short and Alphonse being this hulking suit of armor. Anyway, but... Um, so that's kind of, that's obviously an extremely dark place to start this series off on, because yeah. they're, they're both, like, younger than ten when this happens to them, and then sort of, they want to find a way to get their bodies back. They've given up on, you know, human transmutation, because that, they obviously fucked up, but they want to get their bodies back, and that's kind of their search. They're trying to find a philosopher's stone so they can get their, the, their bodies back, and that's kind of where the, the series starts in either form. And... It's just, it's a really, really heavily emotional show, even though it can also be very funny and very exciting, because it is dealing with these very basic human emotions and these, and people who are very, very flawed. And, and you know, I don't think there's any, obviously these Edward and Alphonse are kids, but they still made a mistake, and it's a, you know, life-changing mistake. In the series, they, they always carry this guilt with them, and they always carry this desire to be better than, than they were when they did this. And it's it's very interesting on that level. And I think what I really love about the original series is the place it chooses to end at and what it does in the end is really to to honor sort of the love these two brothers share and everything they've gone through and the idea of sacrifice as central to this story, which I think it always is in either version. Because these brothers will do anything for each other, uh, just as, you know, I mean, it's, the series begins, Edward loses, gives up his arm and leg to save his brother. And it's and this whole idea, and it kind of, it goes back and forth, and then just ending on this note of bringing it full circle where... Um, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, I guess, but it just... That last episode of the original anime TV series fucking broke me the first time I saw it, and every time I've revisited it, it fucking breaks me, and it is a really, really, really great ending that I... I didn't even know it wasn't based on the manga originally, because I just... That felt natural to me. Mm-hmm. When I go back and look on it now, a lot of stuff in the last half of that series seems completely insane, because it just has absolutely nothing to do with the actual story. Yeah. But it worked very well at the time, especially just because those last couple episodes are powerhouses, and it works just fantastically. But the best... Why I love Full Metal Alchemist as much as I do is because the original version of the story, the manga, is... This phenomenal story, and for the most part, the second series, called Brotherhood over here, is, is a very close approximation of that. Um, the problem with the second series is that they didn't want to just do everything they did in the first series again, so they kind of rushed through the story yeah. that the first 25 episodes covered in about 12 episodes. And, and that's actually not as bad as it sounds, because the, those first 25 were bolstered by probably 10 episodes of, not full filler, but just some extra stuff. Yeah. And uh, the filler in that series is actually really good because it's just more stories with the characters. It's kind of episodic in the beginning anyway, so it's really easy to do. But definitely the first couple episodes, one of the thing they botch in Brotherhood is that the manga does not tell you the whole origin story I've been telling you guys uh, until it's probably like a third of the way into the series. They, they hold off on that. And the first anime holds off for about five, six episodes before going full in on that. And Brotherhood does it in episode two. And that's after episode one, which is just completely made up. It's, it's just a new story, like a little story to introduce you to this new series. Because they wanted to draw people yeah. in with something they'd never seen before. That episode's rough. Episode two is horrible because they are trying to do, like, probably what should be like five episodes of, of an origin flashback in one episode. 
really doesn't work. And then episode three, they try to do the original first story of the manga and of the original anime, and they have to condense that into one episode. Doesn't work. Gets better starting with, like, episode four, but they're rushing for a while. Once it gets into its rhythms, though, it's really good. And, and the second anime... What's always a little disappointing about it is I wish you could just combine the two anime because the first anime had this beautiful soundtrack, just one of the best scores for an anime ever, and really good animation. And the second series is widescreen HD, but the animation is often really lazy for the character animation. Like, there will be details missing, characters are off-form are off-model all the time, and the backgrounds look really nice, but there's just a lot of... And there's also just a lot of static animation where they will just show an image but not have it moving mm-hmm. in that second anime, and the music is not nearly as good either. But when it, when it is at its best, it's still very good. It's a very good version of the manga telling of that story, and the action... One of the things that actually is good about the animation in the second series is that they kind of simplify the character models back to how they looked in the manga so they can do really, really fluid action during the action scenes, and that's definitely a step up from the original anime. And what's great about Fullmetal Alchemist in its base manga second TV series form is that it is just this incredibly epic story where it's just, it's very clearly got this beginning, middle, end, but it's huge. It's got dozens of characters that are important, and they go to all parts of this fictional world, and there's this massive backstory. I would actually compare it to Lost in many ways because it's got just so much stuff going on, and there are, the main characters are sort of existing within this framework where there are two sort of immortal beings that are sort of, they're not gods. It's not like that anime trope of yeah. being a god. But these, these sort of bigger immortal beatings that are sort of ruling over these things, or, or, or there's a bigger conflict than just them, but they get swept up in it. And, it's, and so it's a very... It's really interesting to watch it all in one go, those 64 episodes, or, or just read the manga in one go. Because it's a really tightly constructed story where she... Hiromu Arakawa wrote this over 10 years, but she had to have had everything planned out right from the beginning, which separates it from Lost, yeah. which was, to a certain degree, just made up as they went along. Mm-hmm. This was just very clearly, like, everything is so meticulous. And then it builds up to the climax of the series. The, like, the last, the last 20 episodes of Fullmetal Alchemist Brotherhood take place on one day. That's how epic the final battle is. It takes them 20 fucking episodes, and they use those 20 fucking episodes. It is incredible. And it builds to a really great conclusion, too. More fitting for Fullmetal Alchemist, I think, than that first series, even though that first series is kind of my sentimental favorite ending. The second series has a great, great, great finale, too, and the final fights are just... You are so invested by the end. And there are so many great characters outside of Edward and and Alphonse. You've got... um, all the other sort of state alchemists, uh, you know, Roy Mustang, who's the flame alchemist. You've got uh, his lieutenant, who I'm blanking on names right now because it's been a little while since I saw these. So maybe I will not go into all the characters uh, because I cannot find an easy list of them here. Um, Wikipedia has terrible pages for anime shows. It's just too bad. But anyway, um, just lots and lots of great characters all over the place. And they kind of, they will come and go. And there's, there's even more in the original manga than there are in the first anime. Because one of the funny things about that first anime is because they stop adapting the manga at episode 25, they don't introduce any new characters past that point, really. <laughs> yeah. And, but the manga is always kind of doing that because there's lots of fascinating characters. There's even this whole element that's not anywhere in the original series where basically there's a fictional China in this world, too. Like, that they... That, they meet some characters from who come from the Far East and they look very Chinese. And those are very good characters too. But it's just, it's such a great series. It's so dramatically potent at times. Always very funny too, though. Very exciting. I love the hell out of Full Metal Alchemist. As I said, it is tough to know where to rank this because I am technically ranking two TV shows and both have problems because they neither adapt the anime, the manga, like just neither yeah. just do it. But, you know, as a whole entity, I think if I were doing like the best of, this would be a tad higher. But 
I really love Full Metal Alchemist. One of my favorite things about it, just as a TV memory, is that it's a show my brother and I watch. And it's really cool, because we're, I think, the exact same age difference as Edward and Alphonse. And we've always just, that's just something yeah, we've bonded over. You know, Thomas is a robot, and yeah. you only have one arm and one leg, so it's like, it's perfect. Yeah, and then, you know, you podcast listeners have never seen me, you yeah, just don't so, know. Yeah, you don't know he's got a robot arm and a robot leg. Yeah. But Full Metal Alchemist is great. Have you ever seen it, Sean? Uh, no, I haven't. It's, okay. it's an anime that I want to watch at some point. Yeah. I luckily have all the DVDs. In fact, that's, this is something that I just have to tell a story of with Full Metal Alchemist, is that the original series, when I watched it, was pretty close to when it came out in America, like 2004, 2005. Mm-hmm. That was back when uh, anime came out in volumes, so it was super tough to get that whole series because I had I didn't have money when I was a little kid. Yeah. I'd like save up my allowance, and like every month we would be able to maybe scrape together enough to buy one more volume of it. And we'd like sometimes we'd be able to get them new if they were on sale. Sometimes we'd just have to go. Get, a lot of the time we'd have to go get them used. But there were thirteen volumes. We eventually got all of them, and it was just always so exciting when Thomas and I would have four more new episodes to watch. I am so happy the world is different now. Yeah. Thank God for like Netflix and Hulu, man. Because just just fucking good Lord. just box sets. Yeah. Like not even so, like Netflix and Hulu are great, but it's just like just having like for Brotherhood came out in thirteen episode box sets. Thank God. Yeah, so you don't have like these like thirteen just like huge like DVD cases just like blocking up an entire shelf. That's bad. Yeah, my Full Metal Alchemist takes up a good half of one of my shelves at home. I don't have it up here with me because I don't have anywhere to put it in this apartment. It's yeah, a lot of anime. But anyway. That's Full Metal Alchemist, and that is episode one of our podcast recapping the best TV shows, or our favorite TV shows, yeah, of yeah. all time. Important distinction. Yes. So, Sean, we will be back next week. We will. With episodes five, or for TV shows five through one for each of us? Yes. Do you want to give the listeners a preview of what they can expect on the next episode of WGTC Radio? No, because they can just watch it, they can listen to it next week. I mean, so we really need to give them a preview. It's other TV shows, that's preview, there you go. Be excited. <laughs>